0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 247 Sports Network.
4: And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 247 Sports Network. It's still hard to say. We are the (laughs) Podcast of Champions. That means we talk about the Pac-12 football. We love to do it. We've been doing it every week. Well, almost. For the last three years. Many uh, weeks.
0: Many weeks in the last three weeks three years we have recorded a
4: podcast. Many, many winning weeks, yes. And uh, we this is week 13. We're going to recap week 13 today, and we're going to preview the Pac-12 championship game and then get to all of your questions. And there's a lot of them. We got voicemails, we got tweets, we got emails. So it's all cool. If you want to tweet us on the Twitter, we're, Twitter's been really popular the last few days. All this crazy stuff going on at Pac-12 Podcast. Our website, where you can find our old shows, is Pac-12Podcast.com Our voicemail uh, six four one seven one five thirty nine hundred. Then extension seven three four nine seven two. Leave a voicemail. We love to play. We're gonna play three of them today that we haven't even listened to yet. That's how much <laughs> we love the
0: voicemails. <laughs> you shouldn't let them know that because they're gonna yeah. try to sneak something in next time. Yeah, we well, shouldn't shouldn't let them know that.
4: Yeah, it's just been kind of a crazy day. It's always crazy, you know, Dave. there's all this stuff going on. Like I didn't have time to like even re- listen to the voicemails yet. Like as we're on the phone, I'm like downloading them. Onto my little iPad here, where you know, and and you know, within the within minutes of us recording this, like Chip Kelly's press conference just ended. You got mm-hmm. firings going on at Arizona State, the team that finished second in the Pac-12 South. Like a lot of crazy stuff going on, Dave.
0: Pretty light week, I think, <laughs> in the Pac-12. I mean, my Thanksgiving was really light and easy. I can't, you know, didn't even think about any anything work related, of course, because yeah, man, this was crazy. Um, I mean. We're living in a brave new world, man, because UCLA just fired a coach on a Sunday, hired a coach on a Saturday, and pretty much got their first guy, and there was nothing embarrassing about the search. That's, that's that like happens. new ground for UCLA right there. Completely new ground. It was it, incredible.
4: Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that, you, you got a team like Florida, a program like Florida, like recent national championships, a lot of tradition, like, they had to go to the third guy. Like, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Even if everything works out great, things could fall through and you just don't get the guy you want. So UCLA getting like the, the big dog out there, uh, is a pretty big deal for the PAC 12.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a big deal for the PAC 12, big deal, obviously for UCLA. And, you know, I think the, my big takeaway from it, I mean, Chip Kelly, uh, probably the best chance to work out of any UCLA coach. I mean, literally that they've ever hired, but like, especially in the last three or four hirings, um, but even beyond that, I think uh, the level of commitment this showed from UCLA to actually being a big-time football program is probably my bigger takeaway because whether or not this one works out, they're not trying to hire a Denver Broncos wide receivers coach anymore or a <laughs> out-of-work uh, Baltimore Ravens quarterback's coach or you know a guy who sat out a year um, after failing at two NFL stops and never having coached in college. They're actually hiring a guy who's proven it at the college level at not just like he can w- run a winning program, but a program that, you know, competes among the elite. Um, and I think that speaks to maybe UCLA finally turning over a new leaf in terms of commitment to athletics.
4: Yeah, it's uh, I, I really think it's a big deal. I, people on Twitter get mad at me. Like, Could I cover USC? Like when USC was looking for a coach a couple years ago, I thought Chip Kelly would be a good idea. Some people agreed. A bunch of people did not. They're like, no way. Why would you want that guy? And blah blah blah. But my personal opinion is, I think he he's going to do really well in college. Obviously, we're going to, you know, kind of wait and see. But at the very least, uh, the Pac-12 had so much, so many things that were down about the Pac-12 this year. Not going to make the playoff. There's you know the the, the game times and all that kind of crap that you know ESPN trolling and there's so much bad going on for a Pac-12 team to be able to kind of take this away from an SEC team. I think it brings a little bit, you know, the the level of relevance um, higher in the entire conference. We saw like a kind of coaching resurgence in like 2012. Some of those guys are starting to to be fired now. But, you know, this could be another one. You got Willie Taggart. We'll see what, you know, Justin Wilcox is able to do. Chip Kelly. I mean, maybe an Arizona State brings in like a Kevin Sumlin. Like this could be like part two, 2.0 of the coaching resurgence in the Pac-12. And you got to have them. Like the SEC – I think they probably have the best athletes, but I don't think they have the best coaches and if you can at least get the best coaches in the Pac-12, I think it would help a lot.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think um that's been a little bit of the narrative. I think uh, a large part of the narrative was kind of subsumed by everything that then happened on Sunday um <laughs> with, you know, the craziness at Tennessee and ASU firing Todd Graham, but yeah, I mean UCLA landing Chip Kelly. I mean that that did I mean that does kind of send shockwaves through the whole ecosystem of college football because i think a lot of people who are casual observers uh couldn't possibly fathom a reason why somebody would pick ucla over florida um and i think objectively i think that's probably a valid take florida's probably like if you're if you're just looking for certain factors it's probably a better job um just from history and all that kind of stuff but ucla obviously has a ton of potential as we've talked about here um and chip kelly apparently Apparently saw some of that, um, but yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting to see if ASU can now land somebody who's really good, and if that does lead to kind of a 2012 esque uh, resurgence of Pac-12 coaching, or even maybe beyond that.
4: Two uh, potential programs: uh, UCLA and Arizona State. Arizona State people call sleeping giant. I think you called it a sleeping very tall guy on Twitter. <laughs> with funny? um before we kind of jump I want to talk about Arizona State but before we jump into that uh listening to the the Chip Kelly press conference anything kind of stand out for you because it literally just ended like you know within a half an hour of us starting to record the show
0: nothing I I mean I thought for for a press conference I thought he nailed it um but you know we've <laughs> at UCLA we've watched a lot of guys um win a press conference and then not do a whole lot um and I thought he definitely won that press conference whatever that means um he said some things that were a little bit interesting. He talked a lot about trying to fit scheme to players, which, um, you know, again, it's a talking point, but that's something that UCLA coaches in the past have really struggled to do. Um, they'll try to just make their scheme happen, regardless of the personnel. So I, I, I thought that was good um, good for UCLA to hear from uh, from Chip Kelly. Um, but for the most part, I just thought he, he sounded good. He sounded, uh, he sounded really, really eager to start, um, but I... I, I have a hard time taking too much away from press conferences, except when they're very weird, and uh, that's probably a good transition into ASU, which had a <laughs> very, very strange press conference from Ray Davidson um, uh, announcing the Todd Graham firing yesterday.
4: It was it was kind of strange, and uh, you know, you know, saying that one game doesn't matter all that much. Uh, you know, obviously ASU won the territorial cup, but. ASU did finish second in the Pac-12 South, and he just poo-pooed that like it was nothing. Like it's a, t- he said the Pac-12 South was like terrible or something. It didn't matter. Um, I mean, they got a huge win against Washington. You know, they beat Utah. Um, certainly, the win against Arizona, where they were losing, and it looked like for them to have their backs against the wall and then fight back in that game. Um, you know, even though Khalil Tate got hurt, but you know, there was. I thought there were some positive things there. It just seemed like his mind was made up, kind of heading into that, and. You know, if you we you look at our rankings, like we have Arizona State in the top half. Spoiler alert of the the power rankings. It's not like it's not like the tenth or eleventh best team in the conference. Like it's still a top half team. So there's 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 a lot of guys coming back for this that squad. Uh, I think it's going to be a really good job for somebody. Maybe it's a sleeping really tall guy like Dave said. Maybe it's a sleeping giant. I don't know. But bringing a big name like that and it kind of puts the entire Pac-12 South on notice because this is a team that already finished second.
0: Yeah, and so my take on Arizona State as a job is basically this. Like and we talked about this a few weeks ago, like every other job in the Pac twelve, if you get the a right coach in terms of like super elite guy, like say you luck into Urban Meyer when he's young, or you get you know, you land chip Kelly or whatever, or you you get um, you know, Nick Saban when he's relatively young, you can win huge there. Absolutely, if you get an elite coach. But I think if you have a good coach there, It's still one of those jobs where there's going to be cycles. Like I don't think it's – the and if I'm denigrating Arizona State here, I I don't mean to because I think it's a really good job in the Pac-12. But it doesn't have the recruiting base in terms of you know being in LA essentially because I think USC and UCLA probably have that recruiting base or have the, the kind of academic national base that Stanford does or that weird brand that Oregon built. It doesn't quite have that and maybe it could build but it doesn't have that right now. And so I think it is prone to these cyclical lulls, like how a lot of schools are. You build up when you have, you know, a good group of juniors and seniors. That's when you make your run. You win a division, compete for the conference. Basically, you know, once every three or four years, you're really, you know, in that competition. And then you have lulls. And I think Arizona State just went through a lull that's kind of cyclical. They they had a really good coach in Todd Graham. I mean, I I think we talked about it two years ago, and they hit a lull soon after that, but we talked about Todd Graham as being potentially one of the top four coaches in the league at that time. I mean, we were talking about him as potentially one of the best, two, um, And he didn't suddenly, you know, forget how to coach in the last, you know, whatever. Um, and I just thought it was interesting with the way this year finished, with finishing second in the league, and clearly setting up for what should be a really good year next year. They fired him, and I mean, maybe the the plan is under wraps, but it seemed like the messaging from their athletic director was just so weird. Uh, potentially wants the next coach to keep the offensive and defensive yeah. coordinators Bizarre. Um, just and maintain the culture, but Todd Grant built that culture, so I just thought it was all very strange. I mean, I, we joked about it on the podcast a few times that Arizona State was going to fire him this year and the whole thing, but honestly, given the way this year turned out, given the fact that they beat Arizona in this final game, given just kind of the makeup of that squad for next year. I mean, the more I looked at it, the more I thought it was a really baffling decision to fire him.
4: Yeah, I was watching, like, the Pac-12 sports report or the the, the post-game thing, and Lincoln Kennedy, one of the analysts on there, they were talking about who should be the coach of the year. He, he said Todd Graham, like, you know? Yeah. Like, that's insane. Like, he could
0: have been the coach of the year. They were picked to go, like, 3-9 and nine this year or 4-8. and eight. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like this was expected to be a 7-5 and five second in the Pac-12 South, and yeah, the Pac-12 is a little bit down, but not as down as as the athletic director made it sound. I mean, they went 6-3 and three in a major Power 5 conference. That has to count for something.
4: Yeah, apparently not, so that was one of those things where they just had a decision. Uh, the rumors kind of came out right away that it was going to be Kevin Sublin, like within an hour of him being fired. Uh, I think Billy Lucci, who does uh, Tex-Ags, which is like the biggest Texas A&M site, he's like a dude that's really like really well connected there, um, said it was, someone was going to go to Arizona State. Then our buddy Bruce Feldman came out and said, like, no, that's not happening. So it sounds like, you know, it could happen, but it was it, it, it looked like it could happen right away.
0: Yeah. And, it. I mean, I, I, I don't know if that would – I mean, it doesn't sound like um, that's imminent at this point. Like, no. I re- was reading on Twitter from a few different people that – yeah, he's in the mix, but he's not even necessarily the top candidate right now. So there seems to be – basically my point here is there seems to be a lot of confusion about it. And if you're going to make the move to fire a guy who just went 7-5 and five and 6-3 and three in conference, you better have a really clear-cut plan for what you're doing. And at least at this juncture, it doesn't – I mean, it doesn't necessarily look that way. Obviously, we're only a day in. So, I mean, a lot can still happen. But, right. I mean, if, if, if you're uh, – that list of candidates that came out, which was, I think, Kevin Sumlin – Derek Mason and Pep Hamilton, that initial list that came out, and then I think Bruce added to it a little bit with Jed Fish and a couple other names. But I mean, if that's your list and you just fired a guy who, you know, was sixty percent winning percentage in the Pac twelve, I mean I think Arizona State's winningest coach since Frank Cush, uh, you might have you might be doing it wrong.
4: Yeah. And that that kind of day where you're talking about like Pep Hamilton and who was the other like and, uh, oh,
0: Derek Mason, the Vanderbilt like, coach.
4: Yeah, so that's like you have like a, a a sizzling like T-bone steak or something, and then like you know old Brussels sprouts and yeah. like yeah. and like parsley, like th- Like obviously, Kevin Sumlin's the the winner there. Like what you know, what are you thinking? But I don't know. It's 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 kind of baffling. Uh, it wasn't his guy, so you know, he was around for four years. But if you looked at the the record. Of head coaches in the Pac-12 South, he had the best record over the last whatever six years or five years or whatever it was. USC's had a better record overall, but three different head coaches. As far as one single head coach, Todd Graham had the best record. So I don't know.
0: Yeah, I wonder how much of it was arms race. Just seeing what UCLA did to another coach who'd had like I mean, again, he won I think about sixty percent of his games at UCLA. um, Landing Chip Kelly, maybe. I don't know, maybe that influenced the decision. Uh, I, I can't imagine it would, since he seemed pretty dead set on firing him for weeks now. But, um, yeah, peculiar.
4: Peculiar stuff. All right, well, that was our <laughs> breaking news. We did. I just got in my email box. I want to read off the Pac-12 players of the week. I think I got them all right this week. It's not like I get them right. We all vote. You know, we vote. Um, do you have any guests on the offensive one? No, he wears, pu- wears purple. Scored four touchdowns.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, Miles Gaskin. Uh, he,
4: yeah. he did. Yeah, not not Jake Browning. He threw. Not four. Jake Browning. I was no. I
0: was gonna throw out the noodle arm. That <laughs> would've been funny.
4: So Miles Gaskin, yeah, he had four touchdowns. So that's that's pretty good, I guess. Um, Kenny Young for UCLA got the defensive uh, player of the week. He had uh, a
0: lot, lot, lot of people counting stats and and, and not watching football games.
4: 50, that was fifteen tackles. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a lot. He had a fumble recovery too. Uh, special teams. I don't usually vote for punters, but Jake Bailey for Stanford yeah. had, uh, five punts that were over 50 yards and he had a 65 yard, like a career long one. So he had seven times averaged over 50 yards a punt. So pretty, pretty, pretty good, uh, for that group of guys. And uh, a couple of other notes I have before we jump into, uh, week 13 and our picks, we got to talk about those. Um, so, no, so the Pac-12 has nine bowl eligible teams. Uh, so there's seven, you know, tie-in games. So there's going to be two that are kind of like at large. Um, so, uh, the closest. So this past weekend was rivalry games. They were all kind of blowouts. So the closest one was 12 points of the rivalry game. So that's not not the greatest week you know weekend of rivalry games. Um, and five Pac-12 teams, Dave, were undefeated at home. So the three powers in the North, Washington, Washington State, and Stanford, all undefeated at home, and then USC and UCLA in the South. Uh, But only two teams had winning records on the road. Uh, You want to guess which two?
0: Mm. Uh, USC.
4: That's one of them, yes.
0: And Hmm. Washington? Yeah,
4: very good. Those are the two teams. Um, Washington
0: was just barely, though, right?
4: Uh, let me look at their thing. They had... Who did they... So they lost two games. They lost two... Um, where is it at? On the road to Arizona State and on the road at Stanford. So, yeah. So they were... Um, what did they have? They One, two, three. So they had five road games. So they were three and two on the road. Okay. Cool. So, yeah. Cool, cool. Um, And then I do feel bad for the you know, our producer friends over at the Pac-12 Network because... If you you know you watch that sometimes and there's always like those coaching uh little drops or whatever they're like this is Todd Graham and you're watching the Pac12 network oh, um, yeah. as as they kind of go you know three of them are down so there's like fewer guys in the rotation that they can kind of pick from when they're doing stuff so like if you're doing like you know Pac12 network Oregon like half of your coaching drops are like gone now so you can't, you can't use a <laughs>
0: Yeah. Tough life. Tough life when you have to just, it's just David Shaw just talking over and over <laughs> and over again. He's the safest coach in the Pac 12. Right. Him or Peterson.
4: Yeah. Like, yeah. Those guys aren't going anywhere. Um, Okay. So, uh, re- quick recap on our pick since this is our last, like, full week. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Dave,
4: um, I'm looking, you've had a rough, like, stretch. So, you had it's a, been a rough
0: three or four weeks here.
4: Lo- you've lost, you have a losing record four of the last five weeks. So, yep. your commanding lead, uh, Pretty much ever since we had Kyle on, it's kind of went downhill. So maybe you can blame uh, Kyle I blame for Blame the
0: Bonagura curse.
4: Yeah. So I you went two and four. I went three and three. So it wasn't like a great, uh, but we the, because we tied. So the Utah game, which I was really worried about, since I heard like right before the stupid, uh, they they announced the starting quarterback's not going to play like right before the game. I'm like what? Uh-huh. Really? Um, so Huntley didn't play, but it didn't matter because Troy Williams played well. We'll get into that later. But. We both finished uh, forty six and forty four against the spread through the regular season, so not great. Two games above five hundred. Um, we were well, well above five hundred last year, but we at least we both finished above five hundred, and at least I came back and tied you.
0: Hey, it's not over yet. It's not over. <laughs> no, no,
4: but yeah, I feel good. Like the regular season, I feel pretty good about. Um, yeah, yeah. After you well, had this en- commanding lead,
0: enjoy those regular season championships. <laughs> I'm here to talk about the postseason. All right.
4: Nice. All right. Well, you ready for our Pac-12 Roundup. Born ready. You're born ready? Okay. So um, pretty much securing their spot at number 12 <laughs> <laughs> for perpetuity. Uh, no, I'm not going to say that. Uh, we have Oregon
2: State Beavers.
4: And they were on the road taking on Oregon Ducks.
0: Oh my god! This game, um, Oregon beat Oregon State sixty-nine, nice to ten. Um, what? Oregon had Oregon had fifty-two points at halftime. <laughs> fifty-two was, points. It was fifty-two
4: to seven at the half,
0: and it was like they had like four hundred and fifty yards of offense at halftime. Like this was this was over. I mean, I don't even want to say it was over at halftime. This was over after like. 20 minutes or so um <laughs> oregon state clearly clearly was ready for the season to be over about three weeks ago um whatever little boost they got from Corey hall being named the head or being named the interim uh that dissipated rapidly um before like i even really noticed um but they were i mean this is this was such an ugly horrific beat down um and i mean oregon state beat oregon last year in the Civil War um, so to come back and do this to them beat him by 59 points I mean in a rivalry game that is that is horrific um, <laughs> Oregon I mean Oregon did everything they wanted to do they ran the ball Justin Herbert played well um, they locked him down defensively I mean we've talked about it a bunch if Justin Herbert's healthy this entire year this is probably a 9 and 3 team at worst and maybe even a 10 and 2 team um, but as it stands I think they're set up for a big year next year, and I know we keep hearing, like, vague rumors about Willie Taggart potentially being a candidate at various jobs. I happen to think that's just agent posturing. I think he might be another Jimmy Sexton client, um, but there whatever the case, Everybody's I think they're poised for client. everyone. Yeah. Everyone in the world besides Chip Kelly is a Jimmy Sexton client, <laughs> um, but uh, I happen to think they're going to be really good next year, and uh, this certainly propels them into bowl season and then the offseason on a on a very high note
4: yeah I'll pat myself in the back I kind of figured out the Corey Hall effect was like dying after a couple of weeks and uh which was good I mean it was really good to start but then it kind of was going downhill didn't expect it to go this far downhill but <laughs> whatever the spread was what, what did we have the spread of this one the spread was
0: 26
4: 26 Oregon we,
0: minus 26 yeah so we, Oregon doubled it yeah and we is were like to do on a 26 pointer
4: yeah we were, <laughs> but we were all over this We're like, yes yes for sure um, I didn't get to watch a second of this game live, and then I was like, I'm not going to, you know, so I would go back and watch parts of it. But this was actually the most points scored by anybody in this series, um, which, you know, you can imagine. That's a lot of that's a lot of points. Oregon ended up with 577 yards, uh, 28 first downs. Uh, the Ducks defense held the Beavers to 98 yards rushing uh, in the game. Royce Freeman, um, he ends up with 60 rushing touchdowns, so that's a Pac-12 record. He had 122 yards. Um, there was a, it was, I think it was 55 to seven, Dave. If you're watching, and uh, Oregon gets like a pick six, like stuff they were just like throwing in that you just didn't need, like this extra seasoning that you just this this recipe didn't need that, you know, it's like it's 55, like it's 55 to seven, you don't need a pick six in there. Um, the uh, the trash talking though was kind of interesting. I don't know if you saw some of this kind of oh, yeah, before the game. Um, but Corey Hall was talking about last year, you had mentioned that Oregon State had won. It was kind of raining, and he had made some comment about he looked over and saw that the Oregon players were wearing raincoats and they knew they had it at that point. Um, that really upset. Uh, I mean, Willie Taggart talked about it afterwards, the players. Um, and I feel bad that Corey Hall, oh, I think, I think Oregon State Brats like fired everybody else. Like, it's only Corey Hall there is left right now, but that kind of trash talking and stuff. Um, T- they those guys relished it. Like I don't know if you what you feel about bulletin board material, but those guys embraced it. They were talking about, hey, it's raining touchdowns um, instead of rain. You know, so they yeah, yeah. they really used it to their advantage.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think trash talk. It's I mean, football's a really emotional game on the field, so I think the 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 trash talk element definitely plays a role. Um, and I think if you're Oregon State you got to be prepared to back that stuff up when you start doing that. I mean, they gathered around the O at the middle of the field and and yelled, you know, some F the Ducks or something like that. Then, did, did you see after the game that Oregon players, they, they wore their, like, raincoats or whatever for the handshake or something <laughs> like that? I mean, it was just all, like, very funny and fun. You know, that's part of the fun of a rivalry. I mean, it's not fun i um, watching a 59 point beat down, but these sorts of things that happen, I mean, it just adds to the lore and the, the, like just the story of it all, you know, when an interim coach is talking mess and then Oregon comes back and beats him by 59 points after losing last year. I mean, it's just, you know, I think that adds to the fun and the flavor.
4: Yeah. Props to Corey Hall for the first couple of weeks, but just kind of was unsustainable and then just things went downhill and that's, that's going to be tough, um, you know, we've heard like Bo Baldwin, maybe you know the the Cal offensive yep. coordinator, former Eastern Washington head coach. You know, there's I think there's some good names, but will they take it? I'm really curious to kind of see what happens there. Um, but they need to they need to change the culture. They need to do something different because it's uh it was not pretty. One eleven. Uh, you're not going to win over a lot of people. All right, should we move on? Please. All right, let's go. So this one we got another rivalry game. This one our number eleven team, Colorado
0: Buffaloes.
4: They were also on the road taking on Utah Utes.
0: Yeah, so this was another, I mean, there were a lot of hideous games in the Pac-12 this week, and this was another one of them. Um, this was, I mean, it was a laugher again really early. Utah had a 28 nothing lead at halftime. Uh, Colorado just couldn't get anything done offensively. They missed a field goal early, but they also, I mean, I think their first three, uh, so their first four drives, they had a missed field goal in there, but Three and out, four and out, three and out, um, and their other three of their their um, first four drives. And in that time, Utah poured twenty one points on them. Um, and Utah's defense has had its issues this year, but it's not the kind of de- a team, and the not the kind of uh, coach that you're going to come back from a twenty one point deficit on. It's just it's it's hard to do that against a well coached team, and Utah certainly is that. Colorado just seemed weird all year. Um, yes. Like, they weren't quite in it. Um, their offense was never even close to what everyone thought it might be at the beginning of the year. Um, defensively, they started somewhat strong, but as the season wore on, their rush defense got really bad. Um, they just, I mean, honestly, after the coaching job Mike McIntyre did the previous year, I didn't. Uh, this didn't look like a super motivated team all year to me. It just looked a little off, um, all season long. And, uh, the fact that they were able to get nothing done offensively, Steven Montez once again, had a pretty, just ugly day. And (laughs) he looked so good last year. Um, all of that, just funky year for Colorado, but you got to give credit to Utah. I was really happy that Troy Williams played a great game in his, in, in his final game. I mean, that was so cool to see. Uh, Utah gets to bowl eligibility in a year where they had a you know their starting quarterback who's going to be a star down the road Tyler Huntley dinged up for several games um I thought this was a a nice way to cap their season because they never you know kind of showed that that they never really quit on the season um and I think that uh, is a testament to their coaching and and turning into a pretty decent running team by the end of the year I think is uh a pretty solid harbinger for the future for them.
4: Yeah, this one, this is the only one we did differently. Um, so I picked Utah minus 10 and a half, and you took Colorado. I was a little worried when I hear it right before the game, and I was out like at a party, um, and like, crap, Tyler Huntley's not playing? Like, I was always going to text you, like, hey, can I change my pick? Which, obviously, you would have said yes. Um, I think I was still worried, and it was like 20 to nothing. Not I didn't even realize, like, that was going on. I was like, oh, they're fine. Don't worry about it um what what was up with the the helmets for utah though did you, you see those like the u fingers like it's like fingers on the side of their heads did you see that
0: yeah i didn't know what that was
4: no clue um no idea i was just like what so i mean if you look at the back of the helmet it's like someone's making like a u with their fingers but like basically you look on the side of the helmet it looked like these guys with fingers on there um here's what's interesting so colorado was coming off a buy and they sucked right they looked like they looked like crap um you know, Washington State came off a bye. We'll talk about them later. They did not look good. This is a November bye. So five Pac-12 teams had November byes. Cal, uh, week 11, they had a bye. Uh, they end up losing. Oregon had a week 11 bye. They end up winning. So uh, you know, three of the four teams that had November byes so far, we'll see with USC in the championship game, uh, lost after their bye weeks. And the two teams this week looked like absolute dog crap. I don't know if you knew that.
0: Yeah, and I wonder if um, some of that is just you get in a rhythm when you start playing game after game after game and then breaking up that rhythm is maybe um, more of a negative effect than even getting a little bit healthier, a little bit more rested is a positive effect. Just like, you know, and this this is purely anecdotal, but when I'm thinking about bye weeks, it seems like teams generally do better when they have like that, week 4 or week 5 by where they've gotten through the non-conference essentially but then they can correct like some of the issues that have cropped up um and then they really hit their rhythm through October and into November. I think when you get that like that buy after like your 10th game or your 11th <laughs> game I just think that's like that kind of screws you up a little bit. Yeah. um or or in a in a school to be named later's uh buy after their 12th game which uh <laughs> which is a nice little scheduling quirk from the Pac-12. Yeah,
4: we love it. Um, so a couple of quick notes on this. It was You talked about Troy Williams. That was nice. Um, it was senior night, so it was really cool to kind of see him go out like that. Utah, I mean, Utah was just crushing them. They had over 200 yards rushing uh, in the first 30 minutes. Now, in the second half, Colorado had some life. Um, Utah looked like they were sleepwalking a little bit. Uh, their All-American punter had like a 22-yard punt. Um, after Utah went three and out for the first time in the game, it was like thirty-one to thirteen at the time. Colorado was driving again, so they had you know got some momentum. They really and I was starting to worry about the spread a little bit here. I don't know if you were kind of looking at that. They were in cover territory, but then uh, Utah ended up getting a sack fumble. That kind of turned the tables. And if you watch Zach Moss, he was just trucking people uh, the whole game. He finished with one hundred ninety-six yards and a couple of touchdowns. So. Um, Utah kind of fell asleep for a little while there, but they got that sack fumble. I thought it turned things around, and then it just, you know, it just wasn't going to be close.
0: Yeah, I want to say that if you if you're allowing um, well over five yards per carry throughout a game, it's it's pretty much impossible to come back from that sort of deficit. Like you just if the team can run the ball on you and just grind clock and also convert first downs, like. <laughs> You're gonna have you're gonna have a real tough time. So yeah, I mean they, they got some benefit of, of some stuff in the second half that they weren't necessarily getting in the first half. But you know when Utah can run the ball like that, you're gonna have a tough
2: time.
4: All right, so we're gonna go to our next game. Uh, I get not really considered a rivalry game, but you know two California schools. We had uh, number ten,
2: California Golden Bears,
4: and uh, number nine they actually swapped places in the power rankings this week. UCLA Bruins.
0: Yeah, and I guess this is technically like some sort of rivalry. Um, I mean, I think it's like listed as such because these are two UC schools, but I I don't, I don't know anybody who considers it like a super rivalry. Um, Anyway, uh, UCLA won thirty to twenty-seven, and this was actually uh, one of the more well played games UCLA's played this year. Maybe just being unencumbered by the speculation around Jim Mora and everything, and just being able to play for you know their interim head coach and. Uh, do the whole thing on senior night. But the, I thought they played really well. They played pretty inspired football. Um, they won on a game-winning field goal um, with about eight eight seconds remaining from J.J. Molson from thirty-seven yards. All that was uh, pretty interesting and cool. Uh, Josh Rosen um, played the first half, uh, looked really, really good. Um, and then uh, the biggest issue for UCLA in this game was that Pacal's pass rush was just able to get to him over and over and over again. Uh, finally, he had one where he was just kind of thrown down on the ground. We do not They're not saying whether it's a concussion or whether it's a shoulder injury or what it is. They just said they took him out for precautionary reasons, but he certainly didn't look right getting off the field. Um, and then Devon Modster came in the second half, uh, and he played pretty well. Um, and both those guys played pretty well, largely because uh, Jordan Lasley, uh, UCLA's star wide receiver, um, had his second straight just, monster game after uh, playing really well against usc uh he put together 12 catches for 227 yards against cal so wow. <laughs> um, big couple big couple of weeks for him he's a redshirt junior he actually walked for senior night which is usually a pretty strong tell that a guy is uh, thinking about jumping and i think with his performances the last two weeks um you know he, he he's suddenly propelled himself into a, a draftable but all in all uh, it was a nice way for ucla to end its season for cal you know, I thought they played hard and played well. Um, they haven't been quite the same team away from uh, Berkeley as they have been in Berkeley. But um, I thought this was one of their better road performances of the year. Um, Ross Bowers played pretty well. Patrick Laird ran the ball really, really well. He did yeah. Um, and they they did almost enough. Uh, to win this, but just uh, couldn't quite put enough together at the end.
4: Yeah, a couple of key there was a, I think it was the first quarter UCLA ended up fumbling like in their own red zone and then uh, kind of held Cal to a field goal. I thought that was a big play, like a touchdown there could have changed things UCLA couldn't run the ball early. They had like minus 31 rushing yards early in this oh, game. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Laird, you mentioned, he actually went over the thousand yard rushing mark. Um, not in this game, because that would be a record, but like for the season, so that's, <laughs> that's pretty cool um and I, there was a point in the second quarter where ucla on their own side of the field they got i think it was like a running into the kicker they were punting it ends up making like a fourth and short and uh jet fish decided to go for it i saw you on twitter like really loving that decision
0: yeah and uh, you know there was a lot of talk before I, I so ucla fans are a very beaten down group we all know this um and as uh, the Jim Mora firing was happening. Everyone was already talking down UCLA's chances of landing a big time head coach. And there were a lot of UCLA fans talking themselves into potentially a Jed fish hiring at UCLA. Um, and I mean, first of all, that's, that would be a very UCLA thing to do, or at least an old UCLA thing to do. Um, but a lot of people were talking about, Oh, the offense was so good. And I mean, the offense is going to be good when you've got a guy like Josh Rosen. I don't think that's a real indicator of a guy potentially being uh, head coach material. But um, some of the decisions he made in this game, I thought were more indicative of a guy who's a good potential head coach. And um, he made a really good uh, decision there um, on fourth. And it was a fourth and six and they punted away from their own 30. Uh, then they get a running into the kicker and it's fourth and one. And Jim Mora would have a hundred percent either taken the original punt or just punt it again. Uh, but fish not only went for it on the fourth down, but he was completely ready to go for it on the fourth down. Um, he had the whole team, ready to go to go for it like they didn't need to call a timeout or anything and then they just went for it and first of all going for fourth and one basically anywhere on the field is the right mathematical decision just let's just take that as a given um but the fact that he did it in that moment and did it and had it at basically no hesitation about it i thought it was a really good sign for him and hopefully speaks to some you know rudimentary math skills that are always uh, good to have in <laughs> a head coach
4: Yeah, Cal ended up having like four field goal attempts in the first half. So I thought the UCLA defense kind of kept them, uh, stopped them when they had to. There was one time when a kickoff returner for UCLA caught the ball out of bounds at like the four on a kickoff. I thought that was, uh, those are always fun, you know, when a guy's going to kick it out of bounds. But, you know, you catch it and you step out of bounds yourself. Um, But that was really kind of scary uh, in the second half when Josh Rosen didn't come out. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, this could be a problem. But, uh, you know, it, it took Monster maybe a couple drives, but I thought he played well after that. Um, they responded nicely, Cal tied the game, and uh, UCLA was able to come back. Um, It just seemed to me there was a whole lot of bad special teams play, Dave. There was, like, bad kick punt returns all the time. And then some weird, like, uh, time management at the end. Like, Justin Wilcox didn't use his timeouts at the end. And, you know, he didn't kick a field goal where he he could have kicked a field goal. There were some just weird spots there, I thought, that was, like, maybe not handled the best towards the end of the game.
0: Yeah, and I I thought um, Fish is – I mean – So on the flip side of the fish uh, as a potential head coach, I thought his end-of-game stuff was a little weak. I mean, they won the game, and they kicked a game-winning field goal, so it's nitpicky, but um, clock management at the end was a little funky. UCLA had, I think, three timeouts at the Cal 25 with, like, 46 seconds to go, and they were moving the ball really well. Just from, like, the whole game theory standpoint, you don't want to settle for a long field goal there, and for J.J. Molson, a 37-yarder is... You know, Right at the edge of his automatic range um, You'd ideally like to get at least 10 more yards or potentially even punch it into the End zone and take the whole Kicking game out of the equation um, I thought he played that pretty Conservatively, I thought it was played pretty NFL Like, but the end result was fine You know, they they made the field goal, but uh, You know, that's the kind of thing I'd look for in a, You know, if you're trying to evaluate him As a potential head coach down the line, like say ASU is actually considering him uh, That's the kind of stuff I'd look at
4: all right, let's move on. Our uh, next game, we like to call this one the uh, Territorial Cup, which is a cool name. We had Arizona Wildcats. And they were on the road taking on Arizona State
0: Sun Devils. <laughs> so UCLA had a quarterback injury at halftime. Arizona also had a quarterback injury at halftime of this one. Um, ASU ended up winning 42-30 uh arizona actually had a 24 14 lead at halftime uh but uh khalil tate uh got dinged up um i want to say it was a shoulder injury um uh right around halftime and uh brandon dawkins came in then um and this offense just is not the same with brandon dawkins versus khalil tate um it just was not working the same dawkins isn't and I know this is a funny thing to say when when you're talking about Tate, but Dawkins isn't the thrower that Tate is, let alone the runner. Like he he can't make the same throws. He actually ran the ball pretty well in this one. 10 carries for 71 yards. Um, not as strong and physical a runner as Tate either. Um, and so there were some first downs that he missed just because he didn't have the power to necessarily uh, break through to the to the to the sticks and um, and throwing the ball just didn't generate much of anything in the pass attack. Um, game also kind of flipped um, when, essentially coming out of, um, essentially coming out of halftime. I want to say, Arizona State blocked a blocked a punt. Yeah, yeah, blocked a punt out of bounds at the that Arizona five. Yeah, on Arizona's first drive out of halftime, and that set Arizona State up for a touchdown uh, from the five, and then put it. A three-point game almost immediately and uh arizona just wasn't doing anything offensively to make up for uh tate's absence and that was pretty much the story of the game the second half was just all asu um just poured it in offensively and uh shut down the tateless arizona attack
4: for for to give us a little bit of credit here so we did not get the ucla game right i think the uh bruins were favored by like seven they didn't cover uh we didn't get this one right it was a pick we both picked arizona we were, we were covering both games when the starting
0: quarterbacks went out. We were covering so, both games at halftime. Yeah. Covering both of these at halftime.
4: But, the, yeah. but at halftime, the starting quarterbacks went out. And it was uh, – so, so this one started – actually, the home teams now won the last five of these games. So uh, just a little note there, Territorial Cup. It seems like that's good for the home teams. Um, it was all Arizona to start. ASU went three and out, Arizona touchdown. ASU three and out, shanked a punt, Arizona touchdown – Then they bounced back and then they scored it. But it was still, you know, all, it was all Tate in control, um, you know, in that first half. They get the ball, I think it was right before halftime, and they're driving and they end up trying a, um, what's it called? They tried a Hail Mary and that's where he got hit. And so he really got hurt on that last play of the second half. And then you get Brandon Dawkins uh, starting. So it's, I think that fired up the Sun Devils a little bit uh, in the second half. And that block punt you mentioned I thought was huge. They had another. So it was a, a snap that was the, it hit the punter in the hands and he dropped it. And then they got it blocked. There was another punt where the, the punter dropped a snap and he ended up trying to kick it left-footed. And Rich Rod ended up making a comment afterwards like, we can't even catch a punt. Um, but if you look at the – like Arizona had 439 yards, uh, 24 first downs. ASU had 390 yards and 18 first downs, but really some of the mistakes in the second half, um, ASU just capitalized on them, and it was just, you know, um, they actually had more turnovers. ASU had two turnovers. Arizona only had one. But ASU was able, when they got the ball, they were 11 of 13 on third downs. So I thought they, they they continued to move the sticks a lot better than than Arizona. They were 7 of 16. It's not bad, but ASU just was really good on third downs and uh, capitalized on some of those mistakes, like the the screwed up punts and And just, you know, obviously with Tate being out, that was a big deal in this one. It just, it was too, you know, you hate the tail of two halves, cliche or whatever, but that's that's really what it was.
0: Yeah. And so much of this was the fact that Arizona was consistently getting long fields to drive on in the second half and Arizona State was consistently getting short fields. You know, the offense only had to go two plays, five yards, eight plays, 30 yards. Um, Then there was an eight play, 75 yard. But then later on, it was a nine play, 33 yard to score touchdowns. Um, so, th- I mean, that's when you have uh, three touchdown drives in the second half that only have to go a max of 33 yards. That's that's pretty good for your team. Yeah. Uh, Arizona's inability to punt the ball, consistent turning the ball over. Uh, that I mean, that, that was the tale of the second half. And again, that's so much of it is they weren't they didn't have Kate out there who makes better decisions with the football, who can run a little bit better than Dawkins, who can throw a lot better than Dawkins. Uh, And when you don't have him out there, you're going to have to punt a lot more. And Arizona hasn't been a good punting team this year. Um, And it's just not setting yourself yourself up for success. I mean, this is a game where, again, you see how different this Arizona team is when they don't have Khalil Tate.
4: Yeah, it's night and day. Um, And, you know, if you're Todd Graham and you're in the locker room, you're like, okay, okay, guys, here we go. What do we got to do? It like 24 to 10 or whatever it was. He's like, all right, let's score a few touchdowns right out of halftime. So what do they do? Touchdown, touchdown. (laughs) (laughs) That's <laughs> like <laughs> right. That's pretty good. Like okay, that's what you want. Um, all right. Should we move on? Let's do it. So our number seven team, Utah Utes. Uh, we already talked about them. Our number six team. Uh, like I said, this is a you know a top half of the all powerful Pac twelve power rankings.
0: Arizona State Sun Devils.
4: <laughs> and yet they still fire their coach. Um, our number five team, man, really impressive.
2: Oregon Ducks.
4: Yeah, yeah, we know it's the uh, the Beavers, but still, um, second half of the season, you know, when when Herbert came back, uh, they looked really good. All right, the Apple Cup. So this was, this was the premier game, Dave. This was the one. This was the one everyone wanted to watch. We had our number four team, Washington State Cougars. There weren't four at the time though, and our number three team,
0: Washington Huskies. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, so this was another one of the, like, really, really ugly games. Um, Washington was up 34 nothing after three quarters. Uh, they won 41-14, uh, gave Washington State the old palindrome. Um, Luke Falk is a uh, – is it fair to say he's a bad quarterback this year? At, on the road, he is. In In an air raid offense – to throw for so to only complete 66 percent of your passes in an air raid is actually pretty mediocre to throw 13 picks in an air raid i mean dude that's that's not great um he threw three in this game um washington state's offense in general um was really mediocre in this one Um, I know Falk threw for 369 yards, but they ran for negative 24. Falk took some egregious sacks in this one, some that he had to take some that he didn't have to take. He turned the ball over three times throwing it. He also had a bad fumble. Um, he was, I mean, he was, he had a miserable, miserable, miserable game. The interesting part for me was that Washington state's defense, which had been so strong for most of this year was able to do nothing against this Washington rushing attack. Um, Washington was running the ball from the beginning of the game, and it just never let up. Uh, Jake Browning had to do very little in this game. Miles Gaskin <laughs> handled the load. Savon Ahmed did a great, great job. Um, this was just – I mean, it was a comprehensive beatdown from Washington over Washington State, uh, just able to – I mean – it's inexplicable how bad Washington state's defense was in this. And I think Washington had some stuff scouted out because if you were watching the the game, especially when they would show the like 22 film um, every time Washington state would slant its defensive line or come in at an angle, Washington ran just in the opposite direction and would just get these huge chunk yardages. Um, and it, they must have had some sort of tell to know how the line was going to slant on certain plays in certain situations. Um, but this was probably the worst game for Washington State's defense, the worst game for Alex Grinch and his defense. Um, but yeah, yeah, the, oh boy,
4: the second best you know run defense in the conference just got gashed, and it was sort of like you know Big Brother, you, little brother grows up with Big Brother, gets the crap beat out of him all the time. Little brother goes to like martial arts camp and like working out, and like comes back, and you're like, oh yeah, it's, you know it's on. And Big Brother just smashes him. It doesn't matter. Um, It was so bad. Like, even pregame, Dave, I don't know if you saw this. Like, Mike Leach and Chris Peterson are hanging out. Mike Leach, you know, trying to eat a banana. He can't even get the damn banana in his mouth. Did you see that? That was ridiculous. I did not see that.
0: I did not see that.
4: They they actually, yeah, they were showing them, like, just kind of chatting out. And it was was like, I think someone made a meme out of it or something, too, like him trying to eat a banana. Jake Browning, so this is why we criticize Jake Browning. Like, obviously, Washington dominated. Browning was 11 of 17 for 93 yards. You know, like, he didn't need to do anything in this game. And that's, there's so many of Washington's wins or kind of dimes where you don't need Jake Browning to do all that much. He doesn't make any mistakes. He's fine. Um, until we saw that, you know, the comeback game, um, you know, we didn't really see, uh, what was that, the uh, the Utah game where I thought he played well. Um, you know, these are the kind of games where you're just like, yeah, it's like Jake Browning was there, but he wasn't like an integral part of like of this. You know, obviously Miles Gaskin, four touchdowns, 192 yards. The weird thing you mentioned, so 14 rushes for Washington State. Most of those were fall, like getting sacked and stuff. Um, that's the fewest rushing yards by either an Apple Cup team ever. Um, Jamal Murrow only got five carries. There were, I think, they had six attempted rushes. Like, how do you do that? Like. He had, he had 10 catches for 76 yards, so he was involved in the offense. But it's like Mike Leach decided we are not going to run the ball, and they didn't.
0: Yeah, I, I think there was a weird dynamic between Leach and Falk all year. because Falk. So I think a lot of their running game is calls at the line whether or not Falk wants to run it or not. Um, and I think at the beginning of the year, they might have been running the ball a little bit more than um, – than Leach would like um I think against I mean they had Morrow himself had double digit carries in four games this year which is kind of a lot for a for an air raid scheme and they seem to really shut that off in the last couple of games um not running the ball more and I don't know if that maybe that played into the dynamic that was kind of weird between Falk and Leach I mean Leach pulled them in two games this year Um, and Falk just never looked quite right this season I mean he kept you know, checking down to underneath receivers, even when there'd be something open downfield. He just looked kind of tentative. I mean, it's just, it's weird the way his his career went. Um, and I wonder how much that affected the rush game and whether or not they even ran the ball in certain games. Because I think a lot of it is on him to make that decision, um, you know, based off of whether they want to, you know, take advantage of a certain matchup. But it was, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know why they would only run the ball. I mean, they only had... Six true rushes in this game. Yeah, that's insane.
4: That's nuts. And it's not. You know, Washington was two of nine on third down. And actually, Chris Peterson after the game was mentioned in like doing well against the defense, and they did pretty good on third down. Like, not really. Uh, But there wasn't a lot of negative plays. Uh, Washington State ended up uh, forcing four. They usually force a lot more than that. Washington ended up getting seven. Washington did a lot of those negative plays with just a three-man rush too. Like they just. Drop dudes in the coverage, and that's how they got you know, like a bunch of tip balls. You got the, the three forced interceptions, and that strategy worked. If you look at Washington State's first 10 drives, I'm going to read these to you, okay? Punt, punt, interception, fumble, punt, punt, interception, punt, interception, punt. So you know, by then, uh, it's game over,
0: yeah. And they only scored once, I mean, Washington was done with the game. I mean, it yeah. was. It was the fourth quarter and they were up by 34. I mean, it was like this was it was a laugher at that point. So, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what this Washington State offense looks like next year. If Leach is still there, we'll see about that. Um, He's certainly getting named as a candidate for a couple different positions. I don't know how likely any of that is, but assuming he's still there, have defenses caught up to this offensive scheme or was this a Luke Falk issue? I think that's going to be maybe a storyline this offseason.
4: No, I think you're right there. I mean, it's just it was much more inconsistent play from him all year. Leach didn't. Leach was asked about uh, if they wanted to bench him, but he, I think he felt it was just the team was playing poorly more than just him. Um, And you know, losing Hercules Mataafa too, he got ejected for targeting, which I didn't get to see the play. Did 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 you see that one? Was it like a real target? Yeah.
0: No. I mean, they 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 thought it was on the. It wasn't a dirty play. Like he was he was actually tackling heads up. Um, and he hit, uh, I think it was Browning. I think it was, um, on basically the chin guard. Um, and so, yeah, by the letter of the law, it was targeting. It was another one of those that, you know, we've talked about this on the pod. It would have been that flagrant one, not the flagrant two, like a 15, 15 yarder for sure. The kind of thing that knocks a guy out of the game. Eh, I didn't think so.
4: Yeah. Um, Dante Pettis ended up getting hurt in this one, but didn't really matter. This is five straight Apple Cups for Washington, so they've dominated the series. And Adam Jude, who does a great job uh, covering it for, for, I believe he's with the Seattle Times. Um, so the four Apple Cup showdowns for Chris Peterson, uh, they've outscored Mike Leach's Cougars 162-54 to overall and 90-13 to in the first half. So this was right along those same lines where it's just, just a blowout in the first half. Little, little bit ugly. Okay, um, so now uh, we're going to go to our uh, our number two team, Stanford Cardinal. <laughs> it's been a while since uh, Stanford's been up this high, uh, and they 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 were a uh, non conference this week. They took uh, hosted Notre Dame,
0: Notre Dame, uh, Stanford. 138 uh, 20 a little bit of a deceptive final score this was a much closer game uh, for most of it than you would think from that score um, Stanford actually was down 17 uh, 20 with a minute 23 to go in the third quarter and then they poured on 21 points really quickly it was actually really interesting to see the way it happened um, first Stanford let a really I mean KJ Costello his stats aren't going to look spectacular in this one but he played a great game. I mean, he threw four touchdowns, so I guess that does look spectacular, but only 176 yards, but he was just kind of flawless in his decision-making, justified everything we've said about him on this podcast for the last however many weeks. He should have been starting all year, uh, but he was finally starting here at the end, and he played a great game. Um, He led a nice drive uh, to put Stanford ahead 24-20, And then on the subsequent drive, uh, just the wheels kind of started to fall off for Notre Dame. Uh, Brandon Wimbush, on the first play from scrimmage, throws a pick where he just does not see Curtis Robinson uh, dropping into coverage. Uh, So that's, you know, Stanford took over at the 29-yard line. They punch it in really quickly. Again, KJ Costello just playing really, really well. uh, Throws a nice little dump off to Dalton Schultz. um, And, you know, all those big... Stanford tight ends that they've essentially had for the last 12 years. Um, they were all, you know, in, uh, playing in force in this one. Uh, so they score a touchdown, go up 31-20. Then on the ensuing kickoff, uh, the Notre Dame return guy fumbles the ball uh, at, I think it was like the the 18-yard line, 20-yard line, something like that. Stanford, again, just goes back and punches it in. Um, and at that point, it was 38-20. And this wasn't the kind of game where, except for absurd circumstances like that, no team's going to score 21 points in quick fashion. This was a real ball control game until those mistakes for Notre Dame. And Stanford's just too good of a team. They're going to capitalize on that stuff. And with KJ Costello playing the way he is, Bryce Love apparently able to play on that torn up ankle. Um, He averaged six yards per carry in this one. So he's, you know, even having to come out every other, every other play because his ankle was bothering him. He was still phenomenal. Uh, This is a different Stanford team uh, playing pretty well here at the end of the year.
4: They are. And uh, if you look at the first half of the game, I thought it was back and forth, uh, but there was no turnovers. And I think that was kind of the key. Stanford was, you know, they were 0 7 on third down, uh, I think through three quarters. <laughs> so it was, uh, they were not converting. And, you know, that was just, that was sort of a problem. That's why the game was kind of close, I thought. But, um, you know, great throw from Costello, I think, to start the fourth quarter. They put him up 24 20. And then it was really about the Stanford defense to me. So they intercepted Winbush. They, you know Stanford quickly turned that into another touchdown to go up a couple scores, then they forced a fumble. So there was no turnovers until that point and then uh, Stanford really piled it on with the with the three, three fourth quarter touchdowns for the Cardinals. So I, I thought it was I don't think this was a great Stanford defense. Um, and I don't know you know they played pretty well for parts of this game. I just didn't think Notre Dame played all that well. They kind of peaked at the USC game. And then since then, they've just been kind of, eh, it's more of a one-dimensional sort of squad. Um, Love didn't really have any huge runs. I think he had like a 31-yard run, but he had, you know, 20 carries for 125, even though he was was injured. Um, You know, there was a, you know, Notre Dame had some nice, you know, uh, there was a nice drive, I think, where Notre Dame was kind of driving towards the end, but then Winbush ended up throwing a, a pick in the end zone. So this is actually six straight home games against top 10 teams. Stanford, that they have won, so that's pretty cool. They're twelve and zero in non-conference home games, uh, and they're three and zero versus Notre Dame, so pretty cool. And then you know, with it wasn't the win didn't matter. Obviously, Washington State losing, but this will be the fourth time in six years that the Stanford's going to make the Pac-12 championship game. So, pretty big deal for David Shaw. And uh, you know, after you know being one and two at one point in this season, uh, nice comeback to be able to make the uh, Pac-12 title game. Which, yeah, which we predicted, right? Didn't we pick Stanford to... to
0: I want to f- say we did. We did. I want to say we did. Um, and, I mean, to end up 9-3 and three with this team, especially after the way they started the year looking really shaky, the fact that they've had no real stability at quarterback, mostly through their own doing, but the fact that they haven't had that and they've still... I mean, they were three points against San Diego State and three points against Washington State from being 11-1. I mean, that's a real thing. That's true. Yeah. And that's crazy. Yeah. Um, I think once David Shaw realizes what he has in KJ Costello, um, even beyond like starting him at quarterback, but I think he could be doing more in this past game. I thought you know one of the things that was clamping down on the Stanford offense early was the Stanford offense. Um, they tried to do a lot of that power stuff that they're just not quite equipped for. Um, and so a lot of their third down issues were just trying to do that you know kind of ogre package stuff that um, teams first have really scouted out. And they didn't seem to be willing to play action out of it or do anything besides just kind of pound it up the middle. Um, and I think once David Shaw starts to really trust Costello, and maybe that doesn't happen this year. Maybe it's a next year thing. But once he starts to really trust him, I think the, the offense is going to get the, you know, the the, the the child wheels. What am I saying? Uh, the, <laughs> the You know, the training wheels. There we go. training, uh, wheels. training wheels taken off of it um, and then potentially get back to being a pretty elite unit next year.
4: Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, you want to say like Pac-12 schedule? Like we talked about teams getting screwed. They did lose their two games after they came back from Australia, you know. So yeah. Like, um, after that, they're pretty good now. And you know, I I did a USC podcast today where we'll talk about the championship game in a little bit, and we're like, oh, Stanford's been playing well, like the you know second half of the season. Not not the. I mean, they they got really lucky to beat Oregon State, you know, by a point. Um, there's been some. You know, kind of moments where they just weren't even looking all that good. But I, you know, you look at it wasn't a d- dominating win against Cal, but they got the win. You know, it was a really good win against Notre Dame. Um, you know, being able to beat Washington on that Friday night game, um, it's you know they're going to have some momentum going into this Pac-12 championship game. And even though, uh, if you listen to to David Shaw on the conference today, um, you know, ideally you don't want to be coming off a tough game like that and then turning around in six days and and playing the Pac-12 championship game against a team that's coming off a bye. Uh, he said that no one deserved a bye more than USC, though, because they got, you know, they have 12 weeks in a row. But the the, the nice part is, David at least they only have to drive. They're not like, if it was Washington State and they were going to go to Seattle, come back, and then six days later try to fly to Santa Clara to play arrested USC, that would be a lot more unfair. At least Stanford can drive.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so um, I think it's going to be a, a fun game, and we'll – you know, we'll get into our real preview in just a second. We still got to name who our top team is oh, in right. the, the, the power rankings. The, come on, Ryan. We have an order of things here.
4: The podcast of champions, power rankings, the end of the regular season. The number one team is... USC
0: Trojans. Honestly.
4: Huh. And I and just of picked course that it's... myself. I'm a homer. I just did that myself. Dave had no say in the, the rankings.
0: Yeah. No, I, had, I had no say. But <laughs> it's... I mean, come on. It's valid. Uh, so, USC... Taking on Stanford. Are we ready to jump right into this?
4: I think we uh I think we should. We don't have a whole bunch of games to preview this week because there's only one game left. Um yep. we'll do bowl previews and all that kind of stuff, but yeah, it's uh USC versus Stanford.
0: All right. So this game is going to be on Friday at five PM on ESPN. Uh Stanford playing USC at what is it, Levi Stadium? Is that what we're calling it these Levi, days? Levi Stadium. <laughs> Whatever, whatever placeholder it is before the Vegas stadium gets built, uh, (laughs) USC is favored by three points. This opened at two and a half, moved to, uh, USC by three, um, really interesting game because there's a lot at play here. First, these two teams have already played this year. Uh, USC beat them 42, 24, and the game was pretty ugly. Actually, USC played really, really well in that game. Stanford did not play pretty well. Um. And they were still starting Keller Christ at that time, yes. um, which was a different animal. Um, I think I don't think Costello even made,
4: played in that game. I don't think they brought him in at all.
0: I don't think he did either. Um, and so this is a, a different animal of a Stanford team since then. KJ Costello is obviously much more of a gamer, much more of a guy who can make things happen, uh, can do a little bit more outside of the pocket, and just kind of freelance a little bit more than keller christ and has also just been a more accurate better thrower so from that perspective stanford's offense is a little bit better but uh stanford did have a healthy bryce love at that point and uh bryce love for all that he's doing right now is not healthy and this game is coming after uh just uh six days off or five days off um you know, only six ga- days between Stanford's last game and this one. So there's all that playing into this. And then, but USC is actually sort of going on the road for this one, whereas Stanford is playing a pseudo home game and road teams have generally not been faring too well in the Pac-12 this year. I don't know. How are you breaking this down right now?
4: Well, the, the, the bye week is interesting because like I talked to before, you know, there's five November bye weeks. Uh, three of the four teams have lost and looked bad. Doing it um, now, USC really just kind of took the week off for their bye week. Like they didn't do anything last week that I that we've seen. They're going to start. I'm going to go to the first practice today right after this podcast, um, and I'm curious to see kind of how they they use it to to prepare. But I think this was a team that just needed a week off after the twelve straight twelve straight weeks. You talk to the guys; they're like they've never done that in their lives before, which I guess makes sense. Like you're never going to expect to be do that. Um, USC's offensive line played their best game against Stanford uh, you know, earlier in the year. And I think people looked at that USC game against Stanford, they're like, that's the way they should play. Well, they never really got back to that point. Like They played pretty well against Arizona State, but this the best they played all year was against Stanford. So basically 11 other times they played, they didn't look this good. I'm not expecting them to look as good as they did. And I think Stanford's going to play better. I think Costello's going to be a little bit better at taking advantage of some of the mismatches. On the outside, with the tight ends and stuff, and USC's secondary has given up a lot of big plays this year. Now they force a lot of negative plays, and uh, you know I think you can kind of get teams off, you know, uh, you know, behind the chains a little bit. So maybe you give up one big play, but you get a sack or something, and USC, you know, gets a lot of sacks, and maybe you force a team to punt. To me, it's going to really come down to it's not been a great Stanford defense all year. Uh, USC's run offense—it should be good, but they didn't really take advantage of UCLA, which was like the worst run defense in the you know in the world. Um, you know how well does Sam Darnold play? If they—if it's similar, like the, I think it would be similar to Notre Dame game. But if USC starts turning the ball over, Stanford will win. If USC doesn't turn the ball over, I think they they can win. But um, I, to me, it's kind of a pick 'em, Dave. Uh, I'm not really sure. It's just hard to tell which USC team, and which Stanford team, are going to come out. But I I kind of have a feeling the first half of the Notre Dame game will kind of give a feel like this game might look a lot like that.
0: Yeah. What, what I would say is, so Stanford's rush defense hasn't been great this year, um, but it has been better of late. Um, they've given up 4.6 yards per rush attempt this year, but 4.2 over the last three games, which is, you know, getting into the top forty range, yeah. Um, Especially against Notre so, Dame
4: is one of those teams, you know.
0: And Notre Dame is a good rushing attack. Yeah. So, so being able to do that, I think, was impressive. That's the kind of thing that might, um, you know, potentially get them uh, in a more competitive situation against this USC rushing attack. Um, the interesting, I, I think, there are some matchups in that USC secondary that maybe favor them against a team like Stanford more than against a team with really athletic receivers, like. Uh, this is a game where I think Biggie Marshall can actually play pretty well at corner because he's going to be matched up against bigger, a little bit slower receivers, yeah. and he's had a bit of a rough year, and so I think he might be able to you know, have a better game in this one. Um, he's kind of designed for that. He's got more of a safety build, um, more of a physical build, and if you put him in press coverage against some of these bigger guys, he might be able to show out pretty well. Um, on the other hand, I think Jack Jones, this is not a matchup designed for Jack Jones. Um, a lot of a lot of big tall guys who, who might be able to body him up pretty well so yeah I, i'm with you i think it's a pick them um i think for me i'm gonna take just based off the home road splits for for everybody in the pac-12 this year basically um i think i'm gonna take stanford to win um i think you know they've been there before there's a lot of factors in this for stanford i think kj Costello is playing well he's playing like kevin hogan reincarnate in big games um and i think they're just playing playing well at this point in the year they've you know they just knocked off a top 10 team uh, i think they'll be in a rhythm and i think usc might have a little bit of rust coming off that bye week especially coming after you know a, a big uh big uh rivalry win the previous week i think they might just have a little bit of rust on them now and uh i think that'll be enough for stanford
4: yeah i'm gonna keep with my not picking usc to cover spreads and take <laughs> stanford it's worked worked pretty well for me uh most of the year i think they're they're like three and eight against the spread or what what would they be? No, it's like they might be four and eight or three and nine or something like that uh, against the spread. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with a two. Getting three points. Like I think I think it's a pick 'em so any side if, if USC was getting three points, I'd probably pick them like just betting wise. Um but yeah I think I'll take Stanford in this one. Um I think it's a really important game for USC. It's a really important game for uh you know Stanford's been there before. You know the South hasn't won this game before. There's, I think Clay Helton, especially with like Chip Kelly getting hired and who knows who comes in at Arizona State, um, a lot of USC fans aren't happy with the way USC's been playing, and they had the best record in the Pac-12 because they just haven't looked really good in all those games. That's why they haven't been covering those spreads. So this is really important um, for, for Clay Helton. And you're talking about going to the Fiesta Bowl versus the Alamo Bowl. Um, I think it's a really big deal. So do they you know, tense up a little bit? Or are they going to play loose and free? Um, I'm just not sure at this point, but the, with the three points there, I think it could be really close, so I'll take the points in Stanford.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's an interesting point about, and this is something maybe I want to ask about. Um, with with uh, Chip Kelly being hired at UCLA, um, obviously that has reverberations everywhere, but certainly at USC. I, I made a joke on Twitter, but I was kind of surprised by the number of USC fans who were like, yep, uh, because I said, um, you know, Chip Kelly being hired at UCLA immediately puts a guy who's potentially going to go ten and two and win the conference on the extremely hot seat entering next year, and the number of USC fans who were willing to say, "Oh yes, a hundred percent, and that's completely justified," was stunning to me, like stunning.
4: Well, I think a and lot of them to get your
0: thoughts on that. Yeah,
4: I think a lot of them wanted him on the hot seat anyway. Like I had people tweeting me, like, "Well, Chip Kelly's hired. Should they fire Helton now?" And it's like. He's ten and two, and eight and one in the conference. And like he was sitting home, like waiting for who they were going to play in the championship game. So there's okay. It's really split up. It's it's you know kind of like our country, just really divided with this stuff. There's people that get mad at me if I say like yeah, I think Chip Kelly's going to be good. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, they, Clay Hilton's the greatest ever, blah, 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 blah. And then there's other people are like, why don't they have, they want to fire Helton every day. It doesn't matter. They could win by 100. They just think he was a bad hire, and they shouldn't – you shouldn't. You know, he shouldn't be the coach. It's like this just crazy extreme uh, on both sides, and that's why I think it's really important, where if if you're not a Clay Hilton fan, you're a USC fan, you don't really like Clay Hilton, and, you know, he shouldn't have been hired and all that kind of stuff, I just – to see UCLA go out and get this home run, it makes them, them even more upset. But I think if you're a USC fan and you don't like Clay Helton, if he wins the conference, like then you should just be like, all right, that's fine. You know, he, he won the conference. That's a good thing. Um, that's not easy to do. They had not done it since 2008. So I think you have to just kind of put your differences aside at that point. But there are plenty of USC fans out there, Dave, that would love to see the snark that you have on Twitter. Um, and there's so many that are going to be mad. Like, if, if Chip Kelly does well... Um, they're not going to want to talk to me because I, I thought he'd be well. If, if Chip Kelly bombs, I'm going to get a lot of emails that, see, I told you he was going to be terrible and blah, 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 blah. like, it's crazy. Like the kind of divide this has created.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's nuts. And like, I think the USC job is a good enough job that it's never going to get, it. it's never going to have that toxic feel that Tennessee's currently has. But when you start, I mean, when you start, like, really seriously considering firing a guy who might very well win the conference this year, and, like, not illegitimately, like, it's not like he's winning the South with, like, a 7-5 and record and, you know, lucking into a conference championship. If he wins it this year, it's going to be because USC went 11-2. and um, When you start, like, semi-seriously considering firing that guy, it starts to make the job look a little bit high pressure. Like, a little bit maybe, hmm um and so it would be interesting to see what i like from a curiosity standpoint from like watching a car wreck kind of way i'd be interested to see what would happen if they ended up firing clay helton um but obviously that's not going to happen in a real world
4: and you know i think lynn swan they won the rose bowl last year and lynn swan the new athletic director was like that's not good enough like you gotta win the you gotta win the conference (laughs) so he kind of put him on notice anyway so if they doesn't win the conference there's, there's going to be a lot of chirping. It's going to make my life a lot harder, uh, I think, if they if they lose this game because I'm going to be like hearing about it and like fielding questions. You know, I'm still like fielding questions all the time about replacing him and you know replacing all the assistants and all this kind of stuff. But if they lose the title game, I'm really going to hear about
0: it. Yep. All right. Should we get to questions?
4: We should. Do you want to do you want to do a random voicemail first? Do you want to start emails? What would you like to do?
0: Can you tell how long the voicemails are?
4: They're they're all like a little over a minute. I don't think there's anything like too, too long.
0: Okay, let's listen to a random voice. All right,
4: here's the first one. No idea what's on it. Here we go.
1: Yeah, hey, this is Bruin Bruiser. Just wanted to call again. Love the show. Had a couple of quick comments. One, I'm very excited as a UCLA fan about the Chip uh, Kelly hiring. So, uh, I think today was kind of a bad day for USC Trojans. Uh, I saw some of the comments on Ryan's uh, Twitter feed, but uh, not (laughs) only did UCLA get Chip Kelly, but with Michigan, with Losing, so Ohio State winning and also Alabama losing, I think that should probably do it for any any hopes of SCs sneaking into the playoffs. But uh, I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Uh, but I just think, I don't think the committee's going to take SC over Alabama, um, so that's kind of a firewall. At least that's what I hope. Um, and then the other thing I want to say is, um, living on the East Coast now, Uh, As much as we have a rivalry with our friends from USC, the Gator fans are much, much, much worse. I'm sure Wood, living in Georgia, sees a lot of them. I'm a little bit further north, up the eastern seaboard, but I see plenty of them, too. And The Gator fans are far more entitled, far more nasty, and far more delusional than even our coaching friends. So That's all I want to say. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Bye.
0: You know that was actually a pretty common sentiment uh, among some UCLA people I talked to, which was like, "Oh wow, listening to all these SEC people, it really makes you develop some fondness for, for the USC fans <laughs> <brands> across town because <laughs> at least they can form sentences and you know have, have reason and logic to back them up but yeah um, no I mean SEC fans they're they're a whole I mean you're married to one but they're a whole are. they're a whole brand of crazy <laughs> like a whole a whole new brand and it's great and we love them for it, but man. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think USC is probably out of the playoff conversation. I think not enough dominoes fell, um, this past weekend, but that's fine. I mean, this wasn't a PAC 12 league that was gonna, um, I don't, I don't think anybody was, I don't think anybody is eager to see one of these PAC 12 teams play against anybody included in that playoff conversation right now. I think all of them, I think Auburn would just crush the life out of anybody in the PAC 12. I think Bama still would, um. So I, I think any, any Pac-12 team should be completely fine going to the Fiesta Bowl and just having a nice season. Yeah.
4: Do so you want to jump? I don't know. Where where did our questions start on the emails? Uh,
0: we're starting with Eric. You want me to start off okay. there? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. All right. Comments for the podcast Ooh, of champions.
4: Man, long. Holy
0: crap. Yeah, this is from Eric. Uh, Hi. First off, let me say I enjoy the show. The Washington Huskies are my second favorite team behind my alma mater, the Oklahoma Sooners. And I rely on your show to give me some insight into the rest of the Pac-12. I am emailing because I have a few thoughts on the UW versus Utah game. Uh, In your last show, you talked about the head-scratching decisions Kyle Whittingham made at the end of the fourth quarter that helped UW get the win. These include trying to win the game in regulation by passing after the game was tied and calling timeout when UW had the ball hoping for a win by screw-up. Think UW versus Arizona in 2014. Actually, Whittingham was rolling the dice all throughout the game. He also went for it on fourth and one at the 47 early in the first quarter. That's not rolling the dice. That's the right move. (laughs) Went for an onside kick in the first quarter and went for it on fourth and 17 deep in their own territory early in the fourth quarter with the game tied. Without these plays, Utah could have had 17 points and 150 plus yards less than their final total, resulting in a comfortable Washington win. So it's no surprise they kept rolling the dice late in the game since it had been going so well up to that point. What would you have said if they had failed on that fake punt and UW had the ball in Utah's red zone? Eventually, Utah's high-risk gambling caught up to them. I think that's a fair point. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, in addition, I noticed the announcers constantly talking about Utah's injuries throughout the game while neglecting to mention that UW was banged up as well. What about UW's best alignment or the heir apparent to John Ross, Chico McClatchier, or the freshman tight end who was emerging as a favorite target of Browning, Hunter Bryant? I imagine Jordan Miller would have been helpful against Utah's taller wide receivers. For some reason... We heard a single mention of Adams, and that's it, while seemingly hearing endless mentions of how banged up Utah's defense was. It was weird. The narrative of this game should be a banged up while Utah faced a banged up Washington. Utah threw the chicken kitchen sink at them, but fell short when their luck ran out. I'm going to make a very nice compliment to Washington right now. The reason you heard less about Washington's injuries is because Chris Peterson is not whining about those injuries to the television crew before the game. (laughs) When you hear a bunch about the injuries to a particular team, it's because the coach or the staff or whatever is whining to the announcers before games. That's why UCLA, the narrative in every single one of their games after about the third game of the year was how many injuries they had, because that's what the memo was from UCLA to the TV crew before the game. Chris Peterson's not whining about injuries, which I think is a is a good and healthy thing for the head coach of a winning program to be doing.
4: Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um we had one from Richard in East LA, but this was before Chip Kelly was hired. Should We just skip this one or I can I can do it real quick if you want or He said I'm setting this
0: uh Oh, it, yeah, no, you can skip this one. It's okay. so Richard makes a funny joke and I'm going to say it. Uh, he he's he's joking that Bobby Petrino should have been uh, should have been on the candidate list, which would have been really funny. Not necessarily a fit at UCLA, at least in olden times, but here in our brand new era where UCLA is out here hiring Chip Kelly, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I think I think Bobby Petrino is a great offensive coach, um, like lowest character guy out there, but great <laughs> great great offensive coach.
4: Yeah. We had, this one's Colorado Utah rivalry, a suggestion. He said apparently this was a rivalry until around. Uh, 1962, and he gives us a a Wikipedia page: Rumble in the Rockies. If they want to build up, they should build that up. They should do two things: Uh, revive the name Rumble in the Rockies. It's a great name. I kind of like that. It sure is. Yeah. Uh, Create a trophy. Every dumb game in the Big Ten has one, and players get really excited and parade around the field with it after a win. How about the horn of a mountain goat, Michael? Maybe Michael should be like the commissioner of the Pac-12. Like Michael, we're gonna.
0: Michael has shown more qualifications in this email to be Pac-12 commissioner than Larry Scott has ever shown. So, Michael for Pac-12 commissioner.
4: We love it. Let's do it.
0: All right, uh, next one. Uh, This is from John from San Jose. Ryan and David, thank you for a great year with your honesty in covering the Pac-12. This morning I saw the news about UCLA hiring Chip Kelly. It is a big boost for UCLA and the Pac-12, but makes Trojan fans nervous. My questions for both of you are... David, how quickly would Chip Kelly turn UCLA into a legitimate threat for the Pac-12 title and a playoff contender? So here's the – I mean, that's the big question, right? Um, Now, I think if he's a truly elite coach, um, and I think he is, but we should see – I mean, everyone out there should see results immediately. Um, And I don't know if result is a playoff contender in year one, but I think there's enough talent in that program. um, I mean – with the all the way they played this year, there's still a ton of talent in this program. Development got very bad this year. Uh, scheme was very bad this year, but there's a lot of talented bodies. I think going nine and three next year is completely doable. Um, the schedule's a little bit tough. They get Oklahoma in the non-conference. So that'll be a tough game, uh, but I think it's there to do nine and three. And whether you know going six and three or so, or, or five and four or whatever, or no five and four, but uh, seven and two or six and three, and and the conference will be good enough to win the South that'll depend on you know whether sam darnold comes back or what happens with asu or you know if utah can put it together again but um i think they should be in competition for the south next year and then i think within two years if chip kelly is what we all think he is i think they should be competing in a real way for the pac-12 conference in two years and uh, potentially a playoff berth at that point
4: agree there and he wants to know how worried should usc be about chip kelly at ucla on and off the field um no, I mean, I think it's, I think it's something that, like, it's a rising tide lifts all boats, that sort of thing. Um, I think it makes USC have to get their house in order. I think they kind of, you could almost argue they kind of sleptwalk to a ten and two season this year. The the big, you know, the, the Pac twelve South wasn't all that great. Um, they didn't lose a game in the Pac twelve South, um, but I, I, they didn't look really good like the whole way. And I don't think you could do that if Chip Kelly does what I think he's going to do at UCLA. You're not going to be able to do that. Um, every week, you know, every year. So I think it's going to make, you know, USC is going to have to kind of, you know, internalize and look at themselves and say, Hey, we need to do this better. We need to do that better. So if anything, um, I don't think you're like, it's something to be worried about, but it's something that you're like, Hey, maybe it's a wake up call. You make yourselves uh, do some things better than you were doing, I guess, at this point. Yep. Uh, Okay. Let's see. Next one. We got, this is Dave. Uh, Hey, Ryan and Dave, what a week, Ryan. Ryan, it's really crazy. I keep reading on the P that UCLA would never be the destination for an elite football coach. And then I learned that Chip Kelly is, in fact, uh, not an elite football coach from the same people. It really is interesting. That's not everybody. Like, there's a bunch of people that didn't think that. And to be fair, Dave, they didn't want USC to hire him back then either. It's not like just because UCLA hired him. There's some people that just right. didn't want him. It really is interesting learning from the quote unquote blue bloods across town. As impressed as I am, we can steal a coach from under the nose of a traditional SEC power. It's not nearly as impossible. Uh, I'm sorry, as impressive as hiring and firing Sarkeesian or Sarkiffin and promoting Clay Helton internally. Oh, no, 100% right, Dave. Dave, I think that's when we know we've truly arrived when we promote a non play calling offensive coordinator that literally no other Pac 12, I'm sorry, no other Power 5 team wants. Very cool, very elite. Anyway, It seems like the, oh, and they spelled USC wrong with the the dollar sign, UC. Yeah,
0: it's a common misspelling. I wonder if it's a keyboard (laughs) issue.
4: I think it is. Uh, Fan base is taking this well and not posting end-of-the-world proclamations or trying to convince themselves that Chip is not actually a good coach. On to my question. Has there ever been a Crosstown rivalry game where, in hindsight, the winners may have really lost and the losers are probably glad they didn't win? If UCLA wins that game, Moore is most likely still the coach at – uh S U C and still going to the Pac twelve title game. Funny how things work out. Dave's Sophie's choice, uh, Ben Albright or Clay Travis.
0: And, so Sophie's oh, oh, I'm choice. Sorry, wait, okay, is,
4: shit. Okay, sorry.
0: So Sophie's choice is um is obviously which one will I save? Um I think I'd save Clay Travis here, but only because you're friends with him. Okay. Um Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, thanks, ben Dave. Albright. Ben Albright. For those of you who don't know, he's just some, one of those NFL draft nonsense people on Twitter uh, who had some really stupid takes on UCLA stuff. So I got into it with him a little bit. But nice. uh, Clay Travis, as everyone knows, is a uh, paid troll for <laughs> vaguely vaguely associated <laughs> with Fox Sports.
4: And this is I'm sorry. This is from Zach. Um, no, I, I read Dave at the end, but it was that was a question for you, Dave. So and his the title of his email was Chip. Uh, F U percentage K I N G Kelly. Um The
0: yeah. F U percentage King.
4: Yeah. F U percentage King, Kelly. Nice. Um yeah. I never heard that one there. So okay, so as far as the, the rivalry game, if you, you can argue that Clay Hilton was smart. He kept UCLA in that game. He didn't make yeah. he made it close. He, he did yeah, all he, he was could. Crying. He yeah. was trying. So I think, you know, they tried to make it so if they blew him out, then you're like gonna run him out of town, but I think this was a case where they thought they could get Chip Kelly so they were going to they were kind of do this but to to be fair to the the guys on the P there's guys when I would suggest like 2 years ago, "Hey, USC should go get Chip Kelly. That's home run." And I agree with you. Like USC's administration was not thinking home run. They were thinking you know, bunt or whatever. And they and I you know, Clayton's one of the nicest guys I know. He's like great guy. He's always been nice to us and stuff, but that's not for USC. You don't hire a guy that's never been um, you know, a head coach before, in my opinion. Um, no, we'll see. You know, he's won 10 games two years in a row. Maybe he develops into a really good coach, but it wasn't a home run kind of hire like Chip Kelly. I wanted to see USC do something that UCLA did. Now, not all USC fans agree because a lot of them, you know, they have whatever they want to say about Chip Kelly. But to be fair, they were saying that when I was telling them that USC should hire him. So it's not just because UCLA got him.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair.
4: And then whose business has the Chip hiring been? better for bro or the P oh.
0: oh I mean anytime a coach gets hired it's better for the the, the, the yeah. site of the school that hired him
4: it would have been better to have a longer coaching search because the longer the yeah. search is better
0: yeah so yeah in terms of like interest the most interest is during a coaching search yes. that's when everything is just because everyone's so intrigued by the whole thing so yeah but uh, yeah no I think there's a lot of excitement in UCLA circles now all right from Anthony Hi, Ryan and Dave. What are your three favorite Pac-12 games this year? Oh, my gosh. He's asking us to remember. <laughs> uh, Washington State USC was fun.
4: That was fun. Um, yeah.
0: Um, oh, man.
4: Uh, Some of the Arizona ones with Khalil Tate were just fun. Like, I don't know. Like, which one would?
0: Arizona. Yeah, it was like Arizona-Colorado, his real coming out party where he had like 300 plus yards filling in for uh, Brandon Dawkins. That was yeah. a lot of fun. I'll, I'll throw that one in there. Um,
4: like Washington at Stanford, like the Stanford win there. That wasn't
0: that wasn't a fun game no. to watch though. Like it, <laughs> it was, was not. not fun. Like honestly, one of my favorite Pac-12 games was Stanford Notre Dame, and that only involved one Pac-12 team. Um, and UCLA Texas a And M was a ton of ton of fun. That to was watch, fun. Too.
4: That was a fun one. Um, um boy, U- USC Texas was overtime. Like that was pretty. Like that was pretty exciting. But I don't know about like as far as fun goes. Like.
0: There weren't a lot of great Pac-12, Pac-12 games this year.
4: What are some of the Oregon ones? Like Oregon with the Herbert. Um, yeah. You know, they, they beat the crap out of Arizona. That wasn't. Uh,
0: they lost to Arizona State. I mean, that was an interesting game. But yeah. it wasn't like there weren't a lot of like close, really competitive games. This that
4: was year. Yeah, that was 37-35. So that was
0: pretty good. That was pretty good. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's say that. Let's okay. say that. One of the two Khalil Tate explosions, I'd say the Colorado one was fun, uh, or UCLA, uh, what he did to UCLA was also fun, um, and USC Washington State. Let's go with those. Sound good?
4: Sure. I like that.
0: And then he said, can you pick the AAC and other Power 5 Conference Championship games? Are we going to add this to the list?
4: No, we're not adding this to the list. I mean, like I mean, like, yeah. watch these teams.
0: I know I watch so many Pac-12 games. Like this is what we do for you people. I watch so many garbage <laughs> Pac-12 games when there were other things on this year. Like Saturday, there were like epic games going on. Like Auburn Alabama was going on, and I think I turned on Arizona Arizona State. Like I think I was sitting there watching Arizona Arizona State instead of watching Auburn Alabama. Yeah, that's what I do for you. But we can, uh, we can but
4: go through these lists and pick just them. pick them, you know, and just see. But
0: let's just pick the winners. All right, okay. Memphis UCF. I go UCF. Yeah,
4: UCF. Uh,
0: Oklahoma-TCU. I'm going to go two TCU in the upset.
4: Okay, I'll take Oklahoma. Um,
0: I'm Auburn gonna, wins the rematch over Georgia for me. Yeah,
4: I think Auburn there. Uh, I'll take Clemson over Miami.
0: I'm going to say Miami here. Okay. I'm going to say they, they bounce back from that pit loss.
4: And I kind of think Wisconsin's going to run the table here and beat Ohio State. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I agree.
4: Really? Okay, I think Ohio State's probably favored in that game, but I don't know.
0: They are by like five, but I think Wisconsin, once you're like undefeated like that, it's kind of like a different thing to lose. Like, it's just, I think they're going to be able to do it. Um, And then based upon your conference championship picks, who are your four playoff teams? Oh, man. So I'd say Wisconsin,
4: because they won the Big Ten. Um, Auburn. Miami. uh, I'm picking Clemson, so I'd say Clemson, but you pick Miami. All right, so
0: whichever winner of the ACC. Yeah.
4: And then uh, uh, Oklahoma.
0: All right, so Auburn, Oklahoma, Wisconsin, and then Clemson, Miami. Yeah. That's fun. That involves fun. at least three new teams in the playoff this year.
4: Now, what would be more fun for the playoff committee would be like Ohio State winning, and then do you put Ohio State in over Alabama, stuff like that. So
0: Yeah, but I don't want to see Alabama anywhere near this play. I
4: don't want to see them in it either, so I'm hoping it kind of goes away, I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah uh andrew ryan and dave first off thanks for the podcast i appreciate the unbiased takes on the pac-12 no matter how bad the entire conference is unless you're a ucla fan dave really hates UCLA.
0: <laughs> i get so much of that like just ucla fans who are like why do you why do you why do you hate ucla so much
4: it's like you went there like that's what you do yeah,
0: it's just it's it's a mixture of self-loathing and, and so many other things
4: He said, "By the time you're reading this, Mike Leach may already be the head coach of Tennessee. After learning uh, from the uh, Chip Kelly drama, I will wait for an official announcement." Anyway, to my questions: Have you ever seen a player regress as much as Luke Falk did this year? Uh, Oh man! He, especially on the road, he just wasn't the same guy.
0: I cannot. I I was trying to think of this. I can't remember. Statistically, it's not going to look like it, but watching him this year, he looked like a different, like a fundamentally different quarterback. Yeah. Um. I don't think I've ever seen a quarterback regress as much as he has. I think other players at different positions, based off injuries and other stuff, it can happen. But quarterback play, yeah, this was this was about as bad as I've seen.
4: And uh, you know, he still sets all the records for the Pac-12. I mean, he pretty much owns them all. So. Um, while Washington State has had pretty good teams the last five years, and the last five Apple Cups, the Mike Leach-led Cougars, have been outscored 189-71 to and never had a chance at any one of those games. In your opinion, what is the biggest reason for this discrepancy, especially this year where UW was not a very good team?
0: I mean, I think a big part of it is Chris Peterson, especially through the I think the last three matchups, he seems to have a handle on the air raid like they seem to have had that thing scouted out and, and, and pretty much well covered, uh, each the last three years. Maybe some of that was Luke Falk, but Luke Falk was really good up until this year. So, um, I think Chris Peterson maybe just has a good feel for what Mike Leach is trying to do offensively. And Leach doesn't really change it up all that much. I mean, it's the same scheme and it's a good scheme. I mean, it works, but it's the same scheme. And, uh, I think, uh, Chris Peterson's just kind of well equipped to handle it. um, But yeah, that's my only real explanation. I think the rest of it's just maybe Washington state just has better talent, better athletes. I mean, Washington state or Washington has better talent, better athletes, Washington state. I think from a scheme perspective uh, had an advantage until Peterson arrived, but yeah, I don't, I don't have a great answer. I think it might just be Peterson having a little bit of an advantage over that offense.
4: Yeah. Sometimes it's just guys match up, you know, certain programs match up better against others and, uh, You know they. If you watch, they really did rush three guys a lot and drop dudes back into coverage, and they felt that, you know, Washington State wasn't going to run the ball. They couldn't take advantage of it. You know, if they're doing that a lot, I'm not sure why Washington State wouldn't be running the football more and changing it up a little bit. But they didn't, and I think maybe Chris Peterson took advantage of that. Um, It was a very. He said a very sad go Cougs. So that was from Andrew. Should we do another voicemail?
0: Yeah, let's jump into another
4: voicemail. Uh, you know, Nick is next, but we'll we'll do a voicemail first. Here we go.
2: Hey, guys. It's Anthony from Santa Monica. Love the podcast. I'm going to try to keep this a little short because I'm about to send you a lot of numbers. Uh, so I grew, grew up in a UCLA household, but I went to USC. So I followed both teams pretty closely for like 15 years. Uh, with Jim Moore getting fired and the potential that someone like Chip Kelly could be the next coach, the same refrain seems to pop up again. Can UCLA hire the coach that will wake the— sleeping giant, take advantage of the big market and fertile recruiting ground, and turn UCLA into a national power. It seems to happen every time a UCLA coach gets fired, and it looked like Jim Mora might actually be able to do it for a few years. But more on him in a second. Uh, for all the talk about what UCLA can or should be, here's some context. UCLA hasn't won a national title since 1954, a Rose Bowl since 1986, a conference title since 1998, and they're 4-15 in the last 19 games against USC. Since the last conference title, they finished in the top 25 three times, but under 500 seven times, and it could be eight this year. Their only real Heisman candidates since Gary Beben won in 67 have been Troy Aikman and Cade McNown. Remember him? With all that as background, we come to Jim Mora. In his first three seasons, he led UCLA to 29 wins. That's the most wins in any three-year stretch in UCLA football history. It's like 6th or 7th best in winning percentage. And they came out of that with just one division title. Fun fact, Clay Halton has made more Pac-12 title games than Jim Mora. I'll end with this. Jim Mora's winning percentage at UCLA was 6.05. UCLA's all-time winning percentage is around 5.80 or 5.90, depending on the source. My question is, in the three-year stretch where they won 29 games, Was that Jim Morris ceiling as a coach or UCLA ceiling as a program? Thanks and fight on. Wow. That was interesting. That was numbers.
0: Well-researched. Yeah. um, I actually did a lot of that research myself, and I would say um, a lot of it is kind of, I I don't want to say unfairly weighted, but a lot of it is weighted by Dan Guerrero's time at UCLA, where the program has basically fallen to, I mean, a little bit above 500 um, with each of his hires, uh, Carl Durrell was like, ai don't know, something like a 56% winning percentage. Uh, Rick Neuheisel was something like a, I mean, 40% winning percentage. He was 21 and 30 in his time at UCLA. And then Jim Mora finished it. I don't know, something like, uh, 50 and 30 or I don't know, something like that. But, uh, regardless, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a case to be made that UCLA, I mean, is it systemic or is it, um, just they've hired a lot of bad coaches. I'm I'm more of the opinion they've hired a lot of bad coaches and they've revered a coach who is like, I mean, his whole career is based off of going like 7-4 and four as an average record in Terry Donahue. Um, but if you go back, I mean, the, the potential for UCLA, I mean, in terms of recruiting, in terms of all that stuff, if they have an elite on-field coach i think is pretty strong i mean if you go back to when ucla was actually really good not just like kind of the fake good under terry donahue where they won some conferences won some rose bowls but never really seriously competed for a national championship if you go back to like and yeah we're going back 60 70 years now but if we go back to red sanders if you go back to tommy Prothrow, even if you go back to you know guys like pepper rogers or dick Vermeil, um when they had an elite on-field coach they were very competitive with everybody um you know red sanders had it as one of the best programs in the country in the 50s and you know that's going back a a great distance so is there something systemic wrong with ucla i think this is the point at which we'll find out because i think jim mora for all of his you know good qualities those first three years was never an elite on-field coach there were a lot of complaints with him those first three years um and i think you know if if he stayed committed if his you know off seasons hadn't been spent flirting with NFL teams every single off season, like if those if he'd just been a little bit of a different guy, um, but brought the same kind of energy to recruiting, the same energy to staff hires over the course of his tenure, rather than you know just over the first couple of years, yeah, maybe it turns out differently. But I think that was more the high point for Mora than it was for the UCLA program as a whole. But we're gonna find out. Chip Kelly is that elite on field coach, and so if what you know, the proof will be in the pudding. If UCLA cannot get it done in the next four or five years, then you might have a a pretty strong point there.
4: Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, that's what we were talking about making the Rose bowl last time UCLA won a Rose bowl. Like I think you have to have, I was,
0: I was, I was two months old
4: (laughs) and USC, like, (coughs) like the, the other, you know, the other guy wrote in, you know, you hire like the, your non-play calling offensive coordinator and won a Rose bowl with him, Like, it's like when my all my buddies that were, it's not a great analogy, but my buddies that are long time Cubs fans, they were waiting years and years for a, a World Series, and Florida Marlins go out and win a World Series, blow their team up, go to the, to, to the crapper, start, and then within a few years will come back and win another World Series. And you're like, how have the Cubs not been able to do this in over 100 years, you know? Um, USC can kind of like sleepwalk through things and still win Rose Bowls. You got to get you know even when they're not doing everything great, they're still like good enough where they can you know things can work out and they can win a Rose Bowl. So you got to get back to that where UCLA is competing for the for the title. They're going to Rose Bowls. They can win a Rose Bowl every once in a while, and you got to be able to do that. And if you can't do it in the next five years with Chip Kelly at some point, then yeah, there's probably a systematic problem there somewhere.
0: Yeah, and let me just let let me just say this too. I mean. On the flip side of all of that is UCLA just got finished hiring Bob Toledo, who was an offensive coordinator no one else was considering, Carl Durrell, a wide receivers coach who no one else was considering. Rick Neuheisel, who was like just on the scrap heap of coaching. And then Jim Mora, who um, was fired after a single season with the Seattle Seahawks and you know four seasons with the Atlanta Falcons, where he never did anything of note and never coached in college before. And they still won like 60% of their games. Um, I think that speaks to the recruiting potential for UCLA yeah. that even with these... I mean, Moore wasn't a joke of a coach, and maybe neither was Toledo, except, I mean, aside from those first three years, he was pretty bad. But Durrell and Neuheisel, I mean, the fact that the program isn't completely destroyed, like Tennessee-level destroyed, I think speaks to the, uh, the recruiting base for UCLA that, you know, even... You know, going through nine years of those guys, um, they were still able to sustain enough of a talent base to then be able to give Mora, who's a goodish coach but not a great one, uh, the tools to win nine games, ten games, and then ten games. So, I, I tend to think the potential is there. I think there's enough evidence there that the potential is there as long as the coaching part is figured out. Yeah. Um, and they just haven't figured it out for the last like four hires.
4: That's why it's going to be so interesting. Um, you want to read right. uh, Nick's.
0: Yeah. Rundown and questions. Hi, this is Nick from Cyprus, a.k.a. Big Nick 21, USC from the P. Cal 27 versus UCLA 30. So the big news is trip Kelly to UCLA, but they got bowl eligible to get that sixth win. Cal came up short from bowl eligible. To me, Cal finished better than expected. UCLA finished at par, in my opinion. U of A 30 versus ASU 42. Wow, both teams get seven wins on the regular season. Both overachieved, and both coaches will probably keep their jobs. Nope and maybe an extension. KT has to be Offensive Player of the Year. ASU won the Territorial Cup. U of A kind of fell short last two weeks, in my opinion. Garbage, parentheses, OSU. 10 versus Oregon, 69. This is a complete ass-whooping. Didn't watch the game, but it's irrelevant when unwin- when you win by almost 60. You owned the game from beginning to end. Oregon played well, getting that seventh win. OSU was garbage. I called this early. They would go 1-11 and 0-9 in conference. Good job, man. Washington Great job, Nick. Uh, Washington 14, UW 41. UW owned this game by D. Didn't have to pass the ball. Washington State came up short. UW wins 10 but won't rep the North. Washington State won nine games, which is good. Both lived up to standard. Notre Dame 20 versus Stanford 38. Stanford won and killed any chance. ND makes the playoffs. Stanford got nine wins, which is a solid considering the slow start, versus USC and San Diego State. Colorado 13 versus Utah 34. Utah is bowl eligible. Colorado was a disappointment in this game and season. Utah won, but didn't live up to the hype. But Utah will go bowling. Questions. Which team was the biggest surprise, let down, and kind of hard to read? Uh, for him, it was Oregon State being the disappointment. The surprise was U of A, and hard to read was UW. I'd
4: say, um, I mean, OSU definitely a disappointment. Didn't expect them to not have their coach, and didn't expect them to be 1-11, uh, U of A surprise. Um, yeah, I think them, or even ASU, like they, you know, we, those they're picked fifth and sixth in the Pac 12 South. Um, but I'd say hard to read would be Colorado because yeah. they were, you know, you, you kind of thought that the defense would take a step back and the offense would be really good. Some weeks they were, somewhere it just was all over the place.
0: Yeah, and I didn't see them, I, I just didn't see like. Uh, and I don't mean to like denigrate, but I didn't see him playing that hard. Like it just didn't seem like it was the same vibe around that team this year. And so that was, I mean, I think I picked them to go five and seven or six and six. I'm remembering that now, but but it wasn't the way I thought it was going to happen. I thought their defense would just be so bad, like just so unable to do anything and their offense would be pretty good. And it was, you know, it's a tough pack 12, but I just didn't see a, a really well coached, cohesive team this year. Um, all right, who wins the conference championship game? Uh, we, we, I picked Stanford. I don't think you picked a winner.
4: I didn't pick a winner. I kind of still think USC wins the game for some reason, but, you know, I'm going to take those points. So yeah, Nick's picking USC. All
0: right, name your players of the year, offense, defense, special teams, and coach of the year.
4: Oh, geez. Um, who do you think offense should be?
0: Uh, I'm going to go K-Tate. Yeah. Uh, just because it was so much fun. Obviously, he didn't end the year quite as explosively as he was in the middle straight, stretch. But he almost single-handedly made this a watchable Arizona team. So I'm going to go K. Tate for I'll probably, offense.
4: I'll probably take Love. I'll take Love for
0: that. Seems fine too. <laughs> um, defense. I'm going to go Hercules Mata I thought he was really good. Uh, Vita uh-huh. beta or
4: whatever for Washington. Like maybe him, but I I, I think Hercules would be. I think might, yeah. be my pick.
0: Just because special teams. Him. Special teams, obviously, Dante Pettis, right?
4: said yeah he had like eight punt returns for touchdowns so we'll go yeah, with him yeah coach of the year todd graham for me what do you think?
0: <laughs> <laughs> honestly that's justified that's completely yeah. justified it was it was a good coaching year from him um i wouldn't give it to Richrod because i don't know how much that was Richrod and how much it was just cleo tate um i would probably go i would probably go i think i would go graham i mean i think wow. that was the i think that was the job of the year um Getting that team to second in the South, it was no joke. So, nice little exit present for Todd Graham.
4: I wouldn't do as much in Rich Rod because he had Khalil Tate and didn't start him anyway. You know, like, like, and when and Tate wasn't in there, it's like, is that really coaching or is that just you had a really good quarterback, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But we'll see. Uh, let's see. So, I, I we still have like 11 questions left. And I have like, I really should be going in about 15 minutes or so. So, we'll try to go through these quickly, I guess. Yeah. Um, Frank said is Baker Mayfield just a high priced version of Johnny Manziel Frank Frank in Sacramento Um, there's a lot of similarities there there are I mean I think Baker Mayfield's a better quarterback but some of those antics man like I want to read the bylaws for the Heisman thing like would I vote Bryce Love ahead of him on the Heisman because of the off the field stuff I think character and stuff comes into that Uh, I'm going to read through all that stuff before I vote but um, some of that stuff just really turns me off I don't know about you Dave
0: Completely. And I think it speaks to somebody who's immature um, emotionally and has some real maturity issues, and that's, that's Johnny Manziel. And I know there's a bunch of people saying, oh, but he's a much better prospect and all this other stuff. And I think for whatever reason, people like him personally, but that kind of stuff on the field is weird. Like, it's, it's weird stuff that you don't see from other players, and the reason you don't see it from other players is because it's weird. It's, you know, something that's going on there that's not quite right um so yeah i think he's got some maturity issues that he's gonna have to figure out and if you're not mature in a you know a league like the nfl you're gonna have some real issues so yeah i i percent 100 think he's a high-priced version of johnny mansell okay all right uh john pac 12 woes uh hi dave and ryan now that chip kelly is at ucla the executives at fox and espn must be giddy thinking about having ucla and chip kelly drawing viewers including two friday night games of 2018 how bad does uncle Larry's TV deal look now? Do you think the folks at UCLA that spent the money to get chip are ready to join forces with USC to try to make changes to the PAC 12 revenue distribution, or are both LA schools stuck until the current deal runs out five years from now? I think they're stuck, but that's just my pessimistic take.
4: I think they're stuck too, but I think, you know, there's enough. If we do, we talked about this before. If you see more presidents kind of bitching about stuff, then, uh, then you can actually get some change. Um, that's what it really needs to be, you know it's, it, the presidents have to do it. Like, I think a lot of the athletic directors are upset about it. Um, but the, if the pres, until the presidents are, um, I don't think you're going to see much, much change there. And they, they locked in that like, 12-year deal that everyone loved in the beginning, but by now, and, and it's going to get worse, because the other you, know, when Rutgers and Iowa State and teams like that are making 20 million dollars more than like, UCLA and Washington and stuff, like, yeah, that's probably a problem. Alex says, um, this is Alex from Pasadena. He said, so, how was your weekend? Anything interesting (laughs) (laughs) happened? Pretty chill weekend, right? Okay, on to the question. With Christmas coming, if you had one gift to give each of the bottom two teams in your Pac-12 rankings, one gift each, what would it be? Thanks, Alex from Pasadena. By the way, chip chip hooray! I think Alex is probably like a Washington State fan, you think? Or is that...
0: I I, I think maybe maybe like a Utah fan. (laughs) Um, uh, So one gift to each of Oregon State and who was it? Colorado? Colorado, yeah. Oregon State, I would give the gift of um, decisiveness in hiring Bo Baldwin because I think he'll be really good there.
4: I like that. Um, I would give them the clairvoyance to know that they need to do something different. So maybe go hire somebody that runs like the the veer or something. Just you got to do something different. Yeah. It's just not working. Um, yeah, go
0: hire Troy Calhoun or something. Yeah, something, something like different. that, yeah. Uh for Colorado, boy. Um
4: I'm going to give uh, no doze. Like I, there's there's they need to wake up. Like <laughs> they just like Dave was saying, they just didn't they looked like I, it just didn't look like they were into it the whole time. I know they lost a lot of senior leadership off that defense, but, man, they just seemed like they, were, they didn't show up all the time. So a little no-dose, a little peppy, you know, maybe some Monster Energy drink or something.
0: I like that. I like that. They need a little bit of Monster in their lives going into next year, a little bit of Red Bull. I like that right? okay. Yeah. Any sponsors out there? If you guys
4: want to sponsor us, if you work for Monster or something.
0: <laughs> all right. Um, is it me next or you? I think it's you. Okay, uh, coaching carousel questions. This is from Scott in Washington. Ryan and Dave, thanks for a great season of podcasts. Look forward to listening to them every Monday after getting home from work. A couple of coaching questions. Mike Leach has a very unique personality. With Tennessee, Arkansas, and Texas A&M all currently having job openings, could you see one of those programs taking a chance on him, and do you see his system working in the SEC? Washington has showed him the last four years in the Apple Cup what he can be done to it when you have Sunday-type defensive linemen. This year is Vita Vea great gains that can get pressure from just having to rush three or four down there. He's going to see four to six teams in conference games that have those level of dudes or better every season. Okay. First question. um, I agree with you. I don't think he's a fit in the sec. I think there are just too many good defensive linemen.
4: Yeah, I would agree there. And I think just, you know, he's so weird and quirky, like the fan base. If you saw, you know what happened with vault Twitter and everything on Sunday, you know, He's going to be talking, about, instead of talking about grandma and church, he's talking about uh, Pocahontas or whatever. You know, he's talking to some, you know, Civil War battle or something. Well, maybe that's not a good analogy, but something that just, <laughs> out of you know, he'll talk something like Pacific War for World War II. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, we, we want uh, sweet tea and, and chicken and Dublin's and stuff. So I just don't think it would be a great fit in the SEC for him.
0: And then second question, uh, Todd Graham out at ASU, rumor has Kevin Sumlin coming there. If I'm a Sun Devil fan, sell me that we're just not trading one coach who can take us to a certain level for another. I cannot sell you on that because I think Kevin Sumlin and Todd Graham are the exact same thing. A good-ish coach who will be, you know, he'll have his peak year where he gets you to 10-2, competes for the conference, and then he's going to have a pretty good year that's like an 8-5. and five. And then he's going to have a couple of low gears where it's going to be a bull, you know, bull, maybe not a bull. And then it'll peak back up. I think, you know, you're getting goodish coaches at that point, unless you have a line on an elite coach. I think if I am ASU at this point, i probably take a, a, a flyer unless I can have a, a unless I have some sort of in with some super elite coach that we don't know about. I'd probably take a flyer on a younger guy and hope you strike gold at this point. Um, but I thought firing Todd Graham was stupid. I think it's a dumb move.
4: I'm a little more bullish on uh, Kevin Sumlin. Um, I mean, he took some some really good players out of Arizona. I think he could recruit. And did
0: what with them? Yeah. And did what with them?
4: Um, had fun with them. They like scored a bunch of <laughs> touchdowns. I don't know. <laughs> like, he plus he likes to party. I hear, and uh you know, <laughs> Millaf would be like be really good for him no i I think he'd be good. I think he would re- recruit better um i think keep some of those kids home and go out and get and get some dudes and you know having a, a youngish kind of fun african American coach I don't think that hurts at all um i I kind of think he would do good things there, but you know it's that's the sleeping really tall guy or sleeping giant depending on who you talk to um, i I think there would be a big splash higher and if you're talking about bringing in chip Kelly and bringing in. Uh, Kevin Sumlin, that just makes the Pac 12 all that much more interesting to me. So I, I'm a little more bullish on him than, than Dave is, I guess.
0: Yeah, way more.
4: Way more. Okay. You're just a pessimistic guy, you know?
0: I'm a pessimistic fella.
4: Yeah. But that was, uh, Scott and Washington Go Dogs. Thanks, Scott. Um, should, well, should I play a voicemail before we do the, the one last voicemail?
0: All right, let's do let's
3: it. Let's do it. Okay. Hey, guys. Love your show. Um, I might be your one fan from Arkansas. My name is Joshua here in western Arkansas. And gum Chip Kelly beat me to the punch. But I had a suggestion for UCLA's next head coach, and my suggestion would be Snip Dog. Now, I know what you're saying. There's a lot of obstacles there. One, he's a big-time USC fan. Two, he's got a game show. But other than that, I don't see a problem with him because we already know he is an amazing youth football coach. He gets all the best talent. He coached John Ross. How could he not just kill it in recruiting? I don't understand. Everybody would want to come play for Snoop Dogg. Number two, think about the hype videos that would come out before the games. I mean, nobody could compete with that. I think Snoop Dogg should have been the next coach, and I think he'd be an amazing college football coach. I just wanted to get what – Y'all, thoughts on that? Because I think I'm onto a brilliant genius idea here, and somebody needs to jump on this. Josh from Arkansas.
0: <laughs> my favorite part of that was like the kid in the background.
4: All right, I gotta give him applause. My bad.
0: Yeah, that was great. Um, my favorite part of that was like the kid in the background who was like making noise back there. It was just great. Well, he was firing off that voicemail. Um, yeah. And an interesting piece there is that Snoop Dogg's kid was at UCLA, Cordell Yeah. So there's a connection there. I, I, I think it's flawless. I think they should actually back out of the Chip Kelly deal right now and make this happen. I think it's a can't-miss. It's a can't-miss opportunity.
4: You, I mean, it's like, what if someone did that? Like, what if Tennessee is like, screw it. We can't get, like, some big coach. Snoop Dogg, you're our coach. Like, how badass would that be? Like, that you would be the talk of college football. He just hires some other coaches and stuff to do, like, the regular crap. And then you got Snoop Dogg as your coach. Like, I think that's brilliant. Yeah. He, he's like the, right, coolest, rap- he's the coolest sh- guy on the planet.
0: Oh, for sure. Should we rapid-fire a couple? You have time?
4: Yeah, yeah. So, let's do, um, so Tom says, Ryan and Dave, love the podcast, appreciate Pac-12 insight and, that comes every week. Now that Colorado's season wrapped up by getting run over by Utah – they wrapped up seven and five, a drop off of five wins from last year, which is very frustrating. I'm sorry, five did I say seven. five and seven. My bad. Uh drop off of five wins from last year, which is very frustrating. I wasn't expecting back to back ten wins, but sure was expecting a second consecutive bull appearance, which hasn't happened since the two thousand four, two thousand five seasons. As someone who sees Colorado from the outside, what do you see as realistic expectations for Colorado a year on a year to year basis? I can't fathom that it's the The decade plus of losing, plus and 10-2, seems like an aberration as well. Facilities have been upgraded, but after the way the season finished, I'm not sure we have the right coach there either. Thanks, Tom, uh, in Fort Myers, Florida. Man, we're getting all kinds of people from all over the place.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think Colorado's a good program. Like, I think it should be. Like, I think there's, I mean, I think there's potential there to be really good. I think they had a really, really long stretch of ugly kicked off by my buddy Rick Neuheisel um, and then continued by Gary Barnett and Dan Dawkins well Gary Barnett actually was doing some nice things but then Dan Hawkins did nothing good but I mean I, I think there's potential there I, I think it's like I, I don't see any reason why they can't be like what we've talked about with ASU where a team that competes for the conference once every three or four years and then is consistently at you know, more or less a minimum of a bowl team. Yeah, they'll have the occasional year where they're four and eight or five and seven, but consistently being a bowl team, consistently you know every three or four years having a run at a conference championship. I don't know why that's out of the question for Colorado. It doesn't make sense to me.
4: Yeah, I mean they won a national championship, and you know some of our memories, you know, so it's yeah. like it's been there. Um, I think it was one of those things where last year was probably a little bit of an overachievement, and you'd rather have gone like maybe you know, eight and four last year and, and seven and five this year as opposed to like ten and two and then five and seven. Um, you know, making back to back bowl games maybe more important than but you know, getting ten wins was really important too. So but it's you kind of felt like maybe last year was a little bit overachieving and then this year certainly felt like they were underachieving.
0: Yeah. All right. So this is from Bobby. Uh Help, from Sun Devil Land. I don't even know where to begin here. I think most fans understand what ASU is and realize that you can't just be in Alabama or USC without the tradition, fan support, and most importantly, money. Ray Anderson is not most fans. I think I called him Ray Davidson earlier. It's Ray Anderson. Oh, yeah. Whatever. Uh, If you took a poll on Sun Devil source, you'd see that around 80% or more of fans wanted to keep Graham for at least another year. In fact, if you are a member of the Scout 247 network anywhere, I've discovered that you can read any board for free without the ability to post. Check out Sun Devil Source and see how much how much people hate this. This whole thing just seems weird to me. Whenever we fired a coach in the past, it always felt like it came a little bit too late. This one seems like it's a lot too early, especially considering Todd Graham finally gave up the defense this year with at least some improvement to show for it, as well as a positive trajectory with a lot of returning talent next year. Hope David targets his criticisms more on the AD than ASU itself, because I don't think the fans that make up ASU are really excited about the coaching search and would have preferred to just see if Graham could get back to 10 wins in the next season or two. Thanks, guys. It's been a great season. Go Devils. P.S. If we end up with Rumlin, I might have to start picketing. All <laughs> right, good take someone? from Bobby.
4: Yeah, I think um, – I, I, and, and just for a note, if you're an annual subscriber on 247, you can read the other premium boards. But that'll that's going to change, I think, at some point. And then if you're like a super VIP – I forget what they call it, but it's like it's the – the highest vip thing then you can read them all i don't know but they they're changing all that kind of stuff but for now you should be able to read the other ones as long as you're an annual member yeah um but yeah i think we you know we both you know we, we he could have been the coach of the year so i think we we agree that. i'm not going to say the SU fans are uh delusional there i think that they they probably got it right now if they go get a home run guy um you know we'll see but like yeah without without that like dave said without a home run dude i'm not sure this was the right move yeah 100% Matt in Hyde Park, Chicago. Good men of the podcast of champions. I try to. I think that's how Matt would say it. Uh-huh. Uh, now, Absolutely. <laughs> now that Todd Graham has been fired, I'm left to wonder what the exact moment when Ray Anderson decided it was time to let him go. He may have held on to the position through the end of the regular season, but given the fact he closed out the year with back-to-back wins, one against hated U of Eh and. Uh, finished with a winning record it's clear anderson had fired him in his mind well before that here are the four most obvious choices feel free to offer a fifth or sixth as you prefer so these are when he feels uh uh, ray anderson decided to fire him one after asu lost at home to san diego state the first such loss for a pac-12 team at home against the aztecs two after asu was blown out at home by usc and essentially knocked out of the south division title race Three after ASU squandered a 14-point lead at UCLA, ensuring an 0-2 showing against the LA schools and another trip to a second-tier bowl. Four after UCLA hired Chip Kelly. One final Mm. question. How delusional is Ray Anderson for saying that ASU should be a quote-unquote top-three program in the Pac-12? Is he he Charlie White's quote-unquote, schematic advantage delusional or just Butch Jones, quote-unquote, champions of life delusional? That's a great question, too.
0: That's so good. All right. I'd go after number two. I think it was after ASU was judging by what he said in the press conference. Yeah, I think it was after being blown out at home by USC and being knocked out of the South Division title race.
4: Yeah, because it because they finished second in the South, but he didn't seem to care because the that was a, a key game and that was coming off the big win against Washington. So, uh, and and literally, let's, like USC's that's the second best USC looked all year. So,
0: yeah, and then uh, it's more Charlie White's dramatic yeah. advantage <laughs> for, you know, sure. for me. I mean top three program in the Pac-12, honestly, that was the less delusional part. He also said he wanted to be a top 15 program nationally year in and year out. Do you know, like, top 15 program, like, teams that are consistently ranked in the top 15 at the end of the year, like, there isn't a Pac-12 school on that list. USC should be if they actually got their coaching situation figured out ever. But, I mean, even they haven't really been the last 10 years. I mean, the schools that are like that are Alabama, Ohio State, and then maybe, like, Clemson lately. But even still, like, being a top 15 team nationally is, like, even more delusional than top three in the Pac-12, which is delusional as well.
4: Yeah. Good good, uh, good question, though, yeah.
0: All right. Can we do more? You wanna yeah, do let's – We got two more. Yeah, let's, let's wrap it up. I'll
4: just be late for practice, you know, whatever. I'm already whatever. late. It's, yeah.
0: That- whatever yeah all right this is from Matthew um, hey Ryan and Dave one of the most interesting times of the year has begun chip Kelly is the home run hire SC should have made two years ago good for the Bruins I see this as a positive for SC because it's going to force Lynn Swans hand for coaching upgrades sooner rather than later despite the impressive win percentage last two years depending on who Arizona State hires USC may have the fifth sixth worst, worst coaching staff in the Pac-12 South in a heartbeat uh, I think you might be getting a little pessimistic there but maybe Uh, This brings me to my question about the Pac-12 in general for you guys. I've always heard programs in the conference referred to as Sleeping Giants, Arizona State, UCLA, Colorado, but have never seen it in reality. Is this just hyperbole on the parts of fans, media, or is it an actual possibility? Could the conference ever be as deep and competitive at the top to match the SEC Big Ten? Seems to me there are too many monetary fan support recruiting limitations for this to ever happen. I would like to hear your opinions on what the floor ceiling is for each program in the conference. USC floor is five and seven and ceiling is national championship. Love the show. Helps my work commute fly by. Nice. All right. Let's, let's, let's rapid fire it. You ready for it?
4: Yeah, well, I think it's pronounced hyper bowl. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Never, okay. I'm sorry. To <laughs> um,
0: so, okay. Um, Washington uh, ceiling is national championship. Yes. Floor is and 12. <laughs>
4: yeah. Unfortunately, we've, we've seen that not that long ago, so we have to do that.
0: Um, realistic floor. I don't, I don't think in the Chris Peterson era, they're yeah. ever going to win fewer than six games. I think in a very bad year, maybe the year after, you know, Gaskin and all these guys on offense graduate, maybe six and six, yeah. but I think that's the absolute four for Peterson's program. Uh, leech at Washington state. I
4: um, think
0: ceiling is PAC 12 championship.
4: Yeah, I would say that I would say PAC 12 championship. I don't see them winning a national championship and, and floor is probably like a five and seven or something or.
0: Yeah, or I, I I could see them being worse, um, because I think people are starting to figure out that offense. But yeah, I think floor is somewhere in the four and eight, five and seven range. Uh, Oregon uh, ceiling, I think I, I, I'm gonna say it's still national championship, yeah. but I don't know if out of the Chip Kelly, uh, Mark Helfrich era, if that's gonna happen again soon. But I, I think it's still a national championship. But they were in
4: the championship game not that long ago, so we'll have to say that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then floors obviously. Uh, pretty low. Um,
4: they were four and stand- eight last year. So, <laughs> you
0: know. I mean, basically, what we're going to get through here is that there are a lot of teams here with national championship potential, right? Let's yeah. just let's just go through it. I mean, the schools with national championship potential, like realistic national championship potential, are Washington, Sta- Oregon, Stanford, Stanford USC. USC. Are we giving it to UCLA? Yeah, I,
4: I think so. I think there's. I mean, obviously, it's it's a long way to go, but I think there's. You know, I, I think a lot of this has to do with the coaches too. Like, would you have been saying this about Stanford fifteen years ago? But you got Harbaugh no. and Shaw, and it's like, hey, they're yeah. they're making Rose Bowls. They're do you know winning the title? Like that. And now they got it. You know, it's like so. Could UCLA do that? Could ASU do that? Could Colorado do that? You know, if they get their David Shaw or they get their Chris Peterson, then I think they can. Like there, there's because we've seen some high level success from those programs. You could get back there.
0: Yeah, and so I guess to answer your question, every school in this conference, if they get the right mix, has a ceiling of a national championship. I, mean, I don't know about Oregon, everyone. Well, Oregon 25 years ago, would anybody have thought Oregon was going to be what it was under Chip Kelly? Yeah. I mean, if you build it right, I mean, I think it can happen. It just takes time and energy and commitment and program and a lot of other stuff. But the reason why you see uh, – going back to it, the reason why you see Sleeping Giants – I've seen it a little bit with ASU. Um, I haven't seen it as much with Colorado. With UCLA, I could speak to that one. It's because UCLA consistently recruits at like a top 15, top 20 level. Like the fact that they have that recruiting base and are still so bad every year makes people think, oh, well, if they actually got a real coach for once, they would probably be pretty good. So that's what goes into that. With Arizona State, I think it's a lesser level of that. um, And they now have facilities that make them really competitive. I haven't heard it as much with Colorado, though.
4: Yeah, not as much with them, but, you know, because they have won, you know, a championship yeah. and they, you know, whatever. But it's, uh, I think coaching can, can make the big difference here. We'll see uh, who ASU brings in. We'll see what Oregon State does. They might change things up and have like a crazy system that you got to prepare for every, every week or, you know, every time you play them. So I think it'll be interesting. But I think that's our last one, Dave.
0: That was our last one.
4: Nice. Uh, thanks for all the questions. I mean, so many there was good. The voice I'm glad I'm never going to listen to voicemails ahead of time again. They were all really good.
0: Oh, uh, don't don't say that. Okay. We're we're seriously going to get something really vile now. <laughs> it's going to be great.
4: Nice. Um, all right, well we better wrap it up cuz I got to go get to uh, you know, the football practice thing. It's been I had a bye week last week, Dave, so I didn't have to go to I practice. I know you
0: you're out of rhythm. You're out of rhythm. Yeah. You're you're a little rusty yourself.
4: I am. A little bit. Your
0: timing's off. <laughs>
4: Uh, But that's David Woods. I am Ryan Abraham. Thank you so much. We are the podcast of champions. We really appreciate you listening and calling in and emailing us and tweeting us and all that fun stuff. And uh, we will talk to you next time right after the uh, Pac-12 championship game. We'll let you know who won and talk about what's going to go forward for the Pac-12 at that point. Thanks for tuning in.